lightning pole lap. Blistering riding, a miracle save, world champion. Dictionary definition there of Marquez style. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, he was Marquez style right to the end, wasn't he? Welcome to episode 39 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 as we look back on the final round. Sigh, the final round of the 2017 MotoGP season, which we kind of wish could have gone on for a little bit longer. It was one of the greatest seasons in MotoGP history, and we will look back on the finale to it over the course of the next two hours as Mark Marquez clinched his sixth world title in all classes and his fourth in MotoGP. We'll also talk about Andrea Dovizioso and how he gallantly gave up the chase of Mark Marquez um, as he uh, chased the world title and crashed trying. Uh, in that finale at Valencia. We'll also talk about his teammate who made the news for kind of the wrong reasons, really, um, in the way he uh, got involved in the championship finale, Jorge Lorenzo. And we will look at all the other big stories from the lower classes as Miguel Oliveira cemented his status as the runaway favourite for next year in Moto2. And Jorge Martin reigned on Joan Mir's record-chasing parade in Valencia in the final round. We'll also look back on the testing that took place in the weeks following the final round. Mark Marquez quickest again in that one. And we will also look ahead to our future shows. We still have shows to go here in 2017. Season reviews coming up in the next few weeks. We'll tell you all about that uh, before we go um, on this week's edition of Bike Live, episode 39. And join me this week for episode 39 once again um, on this special championship deciding week is Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Mapping nine, mapping nine. I've got a cold. This is a problem. <laughs> um, no, serious to say, guys. How you doing? Um, yeah, this this was um, a somber weekend to, to say the least. I mean, it, it's been an incredible freaking season in MotoGP this year, and it's I'm still kind of gutted that it's over. Really, mm. it just didn't quite feel the same watching testing, though, and it's all come to an end. But uh, we still have one last round to review, and uh, oh boy, it was a doozy. Mm, it was, it was. It was a championship finale, which really was set up not to be all that exciting anyway. It was, it was set up to be a bit of an anti-climax, but yet it still produced plenty of drama, particularly late in the race, uh, which we'll talk about later on. And also, I love how the pre, the post-season, or the post-race pre-season test in Valencia, um, in MotoGP's recent history, they always seem to do a good job, no matter how good a season is, of whetting the appetite for the next one. Um, that follows the following year. Um, before we get on to all that then, let's tell you about the places you can find us, starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Um, our YouTube channel, um, plenty from Dre on there surrounding the new Gran Turismo game. Head over there right now to watch it, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport101.net, and if you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to both this show and the Motorsport 101 podcast, patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 as i mentioned five dollar um backing earns you early access um to both of our weekly shows which includes motorsport 101 episode 112 is available to listen to right now if you haven't already listened to it um, you get to listen to um the least um happy sebastian vettel fan i've ever heard in the weeks uh, following a victory drake how could I be happy in him winning a race when the man who started in the pit lane <laughs> was five seconds off the win like it's a bit like celebrating an open goal. You just kind of feel guilty about it. I was like, like what no am I celebrating here? Like, like, congratulations, you spoilt the Lewis Hamilton show. Yay? Um, besides that, me, RJ, and my Glaswegian alter ego, Zoe Hamilton, talked about all the stuff that came out of Brazil, including 
the end of Esteban Ocon's 27 race finishing streak at the hands of Romain punctured Grosjean. Um, a French civil war, so to speak, in that one. Some of the Brazil security threats, a whole heap of news, and some of your questions in the mailbag as well. So episode 112 of Motorsport 1, End of an Era, is out right now. Yeah, one of those questions actually um, included dimensions of this show and as to what the plans are for December in terms of whether we're going to do separate year-end shows or perhaps a combination of the two. Um, tentative plans are they may well be a combination of the two, but we'll update you on that um, in future weeks. Um Anyone who followed me, by the way, on Twitter, just referencing uh, Dre's reaction to Sebastian Vettel's win in Interlagos, anyone that followed me on Twitter the day of Mizano World Superbikes Race 1 this year knows that I'm never too embarrassed to celebrate a race victory. Just putting it out there. Um, maybe, <laughs> that's the, uh, maybe, maybe that's the Yorkshireman in me. Um, the Yorkshireman in me, yeah. I'm, I'm never too embarrassed to celebrate a victory, no matter how it comes about. Um, but yeah, let's get cracking then and talk all about the Valencia MotoGP finale. And what a finale it was. As I said, Dre, it was a finale that in many ways, particularly given the way qualifying panned out, was set up to be a bit of an anti-climax, with Marc Marquez on pole position, only requiring an 11th place or higher to win the title, and Andrea Vizioso, who had to win, starting all the way back in ninth position um, on the grid. Um, yeah, in true MotoGP 2017 fashion, it wasn't going to go away quietly, was it? Never, and this was despite Marquez being absolutely sensational in qualifying. Yeah. Blitzing the lap, I think it was the first ever sub 90 second lap um, of Valencia. Um, only man into who got into the 29s um, that entire weekend. Ridiculous stuff from Marquez yet again. And yeah, you're right. It felt like an anti climax going in, but then you realized wait, is that Ian Oni and Zarco on the front row? <laughs> like, if you could go through the entire MotoGP grid, the two people you'd probably want on that front row the least. Oh, Ian Oni and Zarco. Yeah, Marquez said himself in the post-qualified press comments, I'll look at the two guys alongside me in the front row and it says danger. <laughs> exactly. Luckily, he turned that all right and it was Danny Pedrosa that shot through on the start. But, you know, it's one of those always like, we, we've been like, with Dovi, it's been a matter of, well, maybe, just maybe for the last two or three rounds. So, hey, why not go with that one more time? The way the way this, the way this season's played out. And, uh, yeah, despite the anti-climax to a degree of of, um, of qualifying, uh, this, this was still a very, very dramatic race. Mm, it was. Mar Marquez <laughs> led it early on before essentially letting Jean Zarco through um, to lead the Grand Prix. Um, on around lap six, Zarco then led for a majority of the race um, with Marquez and Pedroza following, and then the two Ducatis of Jorge Lorenzo and Andrea Dovizioso in that order in fourth and fifth. More on them later. Um, but as far as Marquez is concerned, the only thing that could really deny him the World Championship in all kind of realism was an accident for Mark Marquez, a crash that would rule him out of the race, given how infrequent mechanical problems are at Honda and given that he was never going to be too slow to finish in the top 11, he was up in the leading group. So all that was going to deny him, Dre, was a crash. And as we've seen in 2017, Mark Marquez could go about as close to crashing as anybody without crashing, and he did it again. <laughs> I know the BT Sport are very much hyped up on social media game of save of the season. Yeah. Scrap the whole damn thing. It's over, ladies and gentlemen. It's over. Scrap it. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, a, a truly ridiculous, a turn one save. And you'll probably see the picture of this on the thumbnail when the episode goes out. The front wheel is friggin' sideways. <laughs> and somehow he doesn't crash. Like, yeah, like, the super slow-mo and the still images do not do that justice because that is 100 miles an hour that's taking place at. 
It's laughable. It is laughable how ridiculous this is. It is it is an unbelievable save. It's the, it's the greatest save I've ever seen. It was he's going at 100 miles an hour. The front is gone. He's putting the entire weight of the bike on his elbow and he's able to pick it up and save it. He has a run through the gravel, was able to rejoin and still finishes the race in third on the podium. I don't know how he does it. That's any other man. Holton said it after the race. If that's any other man, given that there are already 20 laps for a race with no front-end grip anymore, that's a crash. Anyone else, any other time, anywhere, that's a crash. Marquez saves it, and it pretty much sealed in the championship. Yeah, um, the save that won him the championship, essentially. And he's, he's making world-class saves at a rate that even David De Gea is struggling to match. And it's quite incredible um, what he's pulling off. And, and yeah, you're quite right. I mean, it's, it's part of what makes him such a genius. And we're going to talk about him a bit more um, at greater length um, over the course of this show because he's the world champion. And part of that is what makes him such a genius. The fact that he's able to save crashes, essentially, that just other guys can't save. And um, he's, he's able to ride so close to the limit. And it's part of what um, sort of lies behind that practice stat or the, the stat of crashes for the year, 27 for the year many of which have come in for a practice. It's, in the end, given that he's not hurt himself, it's proved to be an inspired tactic, hasn't it, for Mark Marquez? In, the, in free practice and qualifying sessions, he goes beyond the limit and then works his way back to 99 out of 100. And then well, by the time he gets to race time, he knows how far he can push his luck. Exactly. It's a key part of the Marquez game. He uses practice to essentially practice where, where the limit is. Um, he, he he's He's so good at that now. It's one of those things where... You just he finds the limit. He has a crash in practice. He has a crash, maybe even in qualifying, and it's like, okay, I can't do that again. And then he he just doesn't do it again. It's it's just how he learns, and he's so good at that. And yeah, it's part of the learning curve for Marquez. He he, he can crash, but he knows that he, he knows when it's important to rein it in just a little bit and have that level of control for the race. So. Yeah, he crashed 26 times this season. I think only two, only one of them was in an actual race. Two of them in an actual race, I should say. Um, so only two of them were in actual races. So the other 24 were kind of throwaway, really. Um, yeah, he had a few in, in qualifying here and there, but it didn't ultimately make a massive difference because he's just his race pace is just so brilliant. Yeah, so, he still won the BMW for the most poles for the year as well. Yeah, again, he must have a whole, he's got a whole garage for He has won one. all of them as a MotoGP rider. Every single year, he has won that trophy. Um, it's his fifth in a row. He's only in his fifth MotoGP season, Mark Marquez. Um, so he is the fastest guy in the world over one lap as well. Um, it, it is incredible. And yeah, he would go on to finish third behind Danny Pedrosa and Jean Zarco. We'll come on to them in a bit because, amazingly, the battle for the race victory, as entertaining as it was, is kind of like the third story in this race because Mark Marquez's exploits were one of them. The uh, interesting uh, story surrounding the two Ducatis is next. And Jorge Lorenzo running in fourth position for a lot of that race ahead of Andrea De Vizioso. And with every passing lap, the anger both in the Ducati pit and on social media built and built and built. Um, and it, it always it's with regret that we always talk about team wars on this show as much as we often disagree um, and everybody in MotoGP disagrees uh, on their view of team orders there are very much two polarizing sides of the fence on this one um, it's kind of impossible to ignore it on this occasion um, and Jorge Lorenzo went to great lengths after the race trade to try and explain and justify his actions during that race where he basically claimed that he was trying his best to tow Andrea Vizioso up to the front three. Um, but 
as far as you're concerned, can you find any justification for what Jorge Lorenzo did in that race? No, I think I think I think Jorge's story was bullshit. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I I did not buy this at all. Um, I, like, let's be frank here. Jorge Lorenzo is in it for himself. There is no like. There's no way we we, we able, he was able to avoid this line of questioning in Malaysia because he, you know, he very coincidentally made a mistake that let Dovi that essentially let in inverted commas Dovi through mm. um, during mm. Sepang when the mapping message came up, which you know was almost like a bit of luck as Lorenzo, if you're willing to believe him, said he never saw that mapping eight message on his dashboard, which given the rain, given the circumstances, I, I can understand. This time round, Ducati had it on his friggin' pit board, drop one position. Mm, it's like, for a number of laps. Yeah, multiple laps out of the board. They, they played mapping eight. I heard on, on Matt Oxyscon 12 times they put the mapping eight message, the suggested mapping eight message on the dashboard. There's no excuse. And I don't believe Ducati would not talk about any of this between then and the race itself. Um, I don't believe it for a second on that one. Um, they had to have had a conversation about this because Dovi would have had a, would have had a chance of winning a title and Ducati are going to go there thinking they've got a chance to win. Mm. Um, turns out they didn't really. Um, turns out they both had to overexert themselves to even stay competitive in this one. Um, I'm disappointed in Lorenzo. Um, like, Lorenzo, I, I understand why he ignored like I said, the team orders. Because, listen, I'm a Sebastian Vettel fan. I'd be a hypocrite to come out here and say that, oh, yeah, Lorenzo's got to follow the book. Because, well, my favourite F1 driver made, a, made the biggest news story of 2013 when he didn't do that. But, hey, at least that was only in the second race of the season. That wasn't with a tackle yeah, on that, the line. That, that's the key difference. Yeah, Vettel went for a win. Lorenzo was, tr- was actively hurting Dovi's chance to win a championship. Like, you can use the word toe all he likes, but the proof in, in the lap time showed that Dovi was just as fast as Lorenzo. Like, Dovi was not going quickly because Lorenzo was in front of him. He was going quickly because they were faster in different sectors. There was, he was right on Lorenzo's back wheel. And Lorenzo wasn't oh. towing him up to the front three <coughs> three were getting away from them yeah um, Lorenzo didn't have the pace yeah he didn't have the pace and, and Lorenzo's uh, and it's not just uh, a point Lorenzo has made to justify it a lot of people who perhaps dislike team owners have tried to justify it by saying hey well but they both crashed moments later or within moments of each other so they were clearly on the limit and Davizioso was clearly on the limit trying to stay with Lorenzo I'm afraid that's not the point because there's no way from his position that Jorge Lorenzo could have known that um, because Valencia, because Valencia is a notoriously hard track to overtake on. Hey, just ask Jorge Lorenzo, circa 2015. He knows how hard it is to overtake because the difficulty that Mark Marquez and Danny Pedrosa found overtaking him won him the world title two years prior. Um, so Jorge Lorenzo knows just how difficult it is to overtake around Valencia, um, and yeah, it's just disappointing. I mean, Andrea Davizioso is a better man than me. I mean, he is such oh, a, yeah. such a classy guy, and we'll, we'll talk about him again in a moment, but. The fact that Andre Davizioso was essentially cool with it, or if he was cool, with it, he wasn't cool with it. He didn't display it publicly. Um, he just sort of um, shrugged his shoulders and said, "Hey, it wasn't to be," um, which which I applaud him for. Um, but it, it again brings me to the question of: first of all, why did Ducati feel the need to code it? I mean, they they sent that text twelve times to Jorge Lorenzo's dashboard, suggested mapping eight, which essentially means get out of the way. Why didn't you just say? Get out of the way on the pit board. Just to let let zero fall through, or whatever they wanted to put on the pit board. Um, whatever they wanted to say, they could have done it um, and make it absolutely clear to Jorge Lorenzo 
what was required and at least there's no confusion at least Hulkin Ranger doesn't have the get out of I didn't understand the message um, because he, knew, he would have been, been left in in no doubt what he needed to do um, and yeah it just it's just so disappointing and Matt Oxley <laughs> very outspoken on Twitter during the race and his column, which he's written since for Motorsport Magazine, a brilliant yeah. column. I'd encourage any MotoGP fan to watch it because he, yeah. um, he illustrates brilliantly how he read the situation and what he thinks of it afterwards. And um, his tweet um, kind of, it's kind of striking even now, given how well-respected Matt Oxley is as a journalist within the paddock. And he said straight up, I've tried really hard to like Jorge Lorenzo. Yeah. And and you you can't and you can't you find yourself agreeing with him. I mean, Jorge Lorenzo. I mean, we on this show did our best to try and stick up for Jorge in 2015 when he and Mark Marquez were almost cast as the villains of the piece up against Valentino Rossi in that title yeah. battle. Um, but whatever whatever we say about him, he doesn't help himself, does he? No, he, he almost seems, he almost likes he almost seems to relish playing the villain. Yeah, it's like I like I wish Jorge Lorenzo would just be honest with each other, with, with us, with, with, with the audience and with himself and just go, you know what? I'm looking after number one. Like, Ducati didn't sign me to be a number two. Like, I'm, I'm here. I'm in this for himself. I'm here for myself and I'm going to try and win this race. If he'd, have, if he'd have honestly come out and said it, I'd have disagreed, but I'd have, under, I'd have understood. Mm. Like, it's a bit like Marco Melandri when he went winning World Superbikes in 2013 where he split team wars. He, we... You let Gintoli win one race, but he himself won the other one. And it was like, well, Melandri, you can't really play side against people on this one. It, it's, you just look like a weirdo when you do it. And hmm. it's a, it's the same deal here. Like, if Lorenzo would just come out and said, you know what? No, I'm not listening to team orders. I'm not going to do it. Like, Dovi has to win this by passing me. I, I'm in this for myself. I'm a competitor. I want to win. Fine. Understandable. Like, I will never, ever tell a rider, no, don't go out of your way to try and win a race. I will never tell a guy that. I completely understand and get that point of view. But you've had these conversations. You know there was heat on you in Malaysia for potentially ignoring a team order. You got away with it because you made an honest-to-God mistake. But Ducati, they pay you 10 million quid a year. Mm. like, And you, your actions hurt a man's chance of winning the championship. Like... That's insubordination, no matter which way you slice it. Like, you can't do that. It's an incredibly unprofessional thing to do. Like, let's let's say, okay, let's say, for example, that this is a big what if. Mm. If, if Pedrosa and Zarco take each other out on the final lap and the and both Ducatis are still running, yeah, they what would does have Lorenzo been, do then? Yeah, they would have been one and two, wouldn't they, in the race with Marquez. And, and that, that's the other point. If Mark Marquez hadn't have saved that on his elbow and his knee, and was out of the Grand Prix there and then on, what, lap 23 or whatever it was, of 30. So seven laps to go. Mark Marquez is out of the Grand Prix. And Andrea Vizioso, who would have then been running fourth in the race, would have essentially been in a position where if he overtakes the three guys ahead of him, one of which is his teammate, he's world champion. Um, right. Which would have been an astonishing scenario had it happened. But I think even if that had been the scenario, Dre, because of Jorge Lorenzo essentially holding his teammate back... He would have been too far back anyway. Even if Jorge Lorenzo had decided there and then, okay, Marquez is out now, championship's on, I'll let you through. Dovi was too far back to even do anything about it. Right, like Dovi had given up the ghost by that point. Yeah. I think I think I think he knew it was I think he knew it was over. Dovizioso would have had seven laps to overtake three guys around Valencia. On a track where he was already at a hundred percent. Yeah, probably beyond hundred percent. I'm going by his own words. Yeah, what's like, going to happen? Unfortunately, and. I, 
it also I, I hate saying this listeners i really hate saying this but it it makes me it made me think it almost I, I thought to myself am i turning into one of those conspiracy theorists that sports valentina rossi here when i thought to myself oh god no no but well, when it happened i thought i wonder if he hadn't made that mistake would Hawk Lorenzo have actually let dobby through in malaysia like I, I hate saying that but i found myself asking that question because of what lorenzo did in valencia when the stakes the, were even the, higher. the body of work is now strong enough where you have to question lorenzo on everything yeah you start i suddenly start thinking to myself well if they're on the last lap would Jorge lorenzo knowing that he could have won his first race in ducati would he have actually done that i i, I, I don't think he would have no. i really don't think he would have i think he would have wanted that first ducati victory yeah I, I i i hate the fact that i'm having to ask that question but as you say the the actions of Jorge lorenzo since lead us to question it um but he's not the thing is he's never shown any evidence of being a team player no ever and and in many and in many ways that's what's made him so good because he did not respect the reputation of Valentino Rossi he did not appreciate or respect the fact that it was quote his team uh, in 2008 Jorge Lorenzo went straight into Yamaha and took him on and we we loved him for it um, it was great yeah. but but you know in many ways when you're when you're then the number two guy and you're the guy that has to help the number one out for the title that that strategy then essentially blows up in your own face unfortunately. Um, Jorge Lorenzo had gone to crash out of the race moments after Marquez had his incident. It was an <laughs> astonishing lap, or astonishing two laps, where Marquez produces the save of the century at turn one, rejoins in what was fifth at the time. Lorenzo then falls off out of third, by which point he dropped Dobby and caught up the leading two. Yeah, how uh, how suspicious was that, by the way? How uh, Notice on those replays when Lorenzo crashes out of the race, he is right behind Pedrosa. <laughs> like, funny how, right. like, how he suddenly jumped across that gap. But anyway, um, Lorenzo crashes out of what was third place. Davizioso then falls out moments later, um, given that he was just on the limit trying to stay with them. And in many ways, Dre, it was a shame that Andrea Davizioso's charge had to end in that way. I mean, I said this at the time on Twitter. I mean, it was a brilliant championship, whatever way you slice it. But in some ways, it was a shame that it had to end on a, on a Davizioso fall in the gravel trap um, at turn 10. I almost wanted Davizioso to finish on the podium and sort of... Um, do what he had to do, but just miss out because Marquez held up his end of the deal. And Andrea Vizioso, a very gallant runner-up this year. There's no two ways about that. It says a lot about the influence and the respect he's gained from the Ducati camp that they gave him a standing ovation mm. when he was able to, to bring... Like, he gave up the ghost. He, he brought the bike back down the pit lane and the whole team had come out and applauded. Um, also, a side all, note, just while we're on that, Shout out to the Ducati pit and the mechanics for going straight over to Honda to congratulate them as well. Yeah, very classy touch. Yeah, absolutely. Class acts all the way. Um, and, and on Twitter as well, the social media teams congratulated each other as well. Great touch from the Ducati team. They're honourable to the end. And that's the way it should be, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It says a lot that Dovi... I mean, I remember going... I, I don't know if you remember this, um, Lewis, but go back to Mugello. That was... Dovi's first win of the season. Mm. And I remember distinctly there was a behind-the-scenes video Ducati put on Twitter a couple of days later. And, like, the Ducati pit crew and the whole team was in there at Mugello and the, the team's home base, and they were all chanting. Yeah, you got a hero's welcome, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Dovi. It says it all. Like, the guy has inspired them um, all season long. He's got behind them he's spearheaded this team which nobody would have ever saw coming at the start of the season no one gave Dovi any sort of chance at this title and I said it before he's been the greatest threat Marquez has had since he's joined the top class and 
you know, Marquez has not had a top flight showdown like this in some time, not since Lorenzo in 2013, and that was only really down to the fact the Honda can't count to 10. Mm. But it's one of those things where from a rider from a different team, and that's it's a scenario, yeah, Dovi was such a threat. He's won six races this year. He's basically, you know, tripled his win count in MotoGP this season alone. And... He's been phenomenal. I mean, I wrote a written piece about this on on the website called "The Year of the Antagonist," and Dovi, I reckon, was the was the key part of what's made this season so great. It was the surprise contender, the the tease of a possible fairy tale ending for one of the real grafters, one of the real old school grafters in bike racing, one of the last ones left, according to who you ask, in the paddock and. Six races. We won those dogfights with Marquez. He answered every question we threw at him. We were we were wrong to ever doubt his ability as a bike rider. He's been phenomenal all season long, and it, it, I was gutted that it wasn't to be. But I'm I'm also glad that he got the hero's welcome that he got when he went when he came back to the garage because I don't think anyone in Ducati truly believed they'd be this close at the start of the year. And no. He has he has rallied the team around, and they've turned themselves from a team last year that was struggling to beat Suzuki, and that team of Maverick and Elish to now having the second best team in the field, and maybe the best all round package now with Dovi and Lorenzo there. And Dovi's been the reason the team has gotten where it is this year. He's been superb, um, a class act on and off the field. He he he's led this championship before. But he's also embodied respect. Mm. And I think that's what I'll remember the most about Dolby's campaign this year is that this championship's been played out in tremendous spirit, um, in, 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 in great sportsmanship. And, in, and again, Dolby is a class actor, gentleman. I think he gave Lorenzo way too much credit mm. in that race interview when he, when he talked about the situation that he was in and you know, the possibility of him ignoring team orders. I think Dolby is a, is a, is a class actor, yeah. fantastic ambassador. For there the is a team player. Yeah. There is a team player. He's he's been the team player for years and years and years, and this was his chance. And like this, this will be his season. I think mm. that'll be remembered just as much as Marquez winning the title will be the fact that Dovi was the one that pushed him all the way. And I, I'm glad we got the last season uh, ending on that one. He's been superb all year long and a, a worthy, worthy champion to be. And sadly, it wasn't to be this time round, but. Again, incredible effort, and again, the biggest, I think, antagonist of this season was Dovi, and I'm glad he got the reception that he did, because he was truly deserved. Absolutely, and I, and I don't necessarily think that this is the this is it for Dovi. I mean, it, it is by a, by a mile his best season in the Premier Class, but I don't see any reason why he can't come back again next year and have another go at it. He, why not? He, he's absolutely... Um, he's, he's, and what, what I think is, is amazing, and deserves mentioning about Dovizioso for this season, is how rare this kind of thing is, in that the, the, the aliens that we talk about in MotoGP, they've all been aliens from the start. They've arrived in MotoGP at that level and stayed at that level. Very, It's very rare that you see a rider enter MotoGP in almost that second tier of rider and then make that noticeable step up, raise their own game, find something within themselves to join that that elite group and join them within a year. And Andre Vizioso, even go back a year to his win in Sepang, we still even then didn't consider him part of that elite. But he's made that noticeable step up both in terms of his riding ability, his ability to manage a race and manage the Michelin tyres, but his ability to take these guys on, like Mark Marquez in Austria and Mategi, like Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales at Silverstone, and beat them in a head-to-head race, mentally, 
um, which is incredible. He has a mental strength that arguably no other rider in MotoGP has nowadays. And you've got to think, Dre, now with Andre Vizioso, with this year behind him, rather than this being a case of, was that Davizioso's great chance gone? Like the Eddie Irvine 99 of Formula 1 seasons. Surely Andre Davizioso now will head to Qatar next year, where he's always going very well, mentally carrying himself like a completely different guy to 12 months ago. Yeah, he'll be thinking, I'm I'm a title contender. Yeah. Like, 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 last year could have been mine. And it's... But it's, you can yeah, argue that it's down to Ducati now to make that bike work around the circuits like Phillip Island and Valencia, which arguably cost Dobby. Yeah, yeah. Philip Island is going to live long in the memory of Dovi when this year ends up. Um, yeah, so it's it's. I completely agree. I mean, this wasn't a golden chance for Dovi. I think mean, you, you summed it up better than I could. It, it was more the rise of a new alien in, in Davizioso, and like we, I don't think we're ever going to write him off as a rider again because again, he's he's just been so good. You get. The word I think Ben Speed used to sum it up was graft, and I think that summed it up best. It, he, he, his, his graft is what got him here with hard work, you know, perspiration, making the you know, making the bike work, making the tires work, um, his intelligence, his 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 maturity. Um, again, the extra bit of intelligence when it came to those dog fights between him and Marquez in Austria, and again at Mategi where Marquez made the one mistake and he left the door open and Dovi cashed it in. Like, <clears throat> we, Dovi is now as complete a rider as anyone in the field. He can win wet or dry. He, he can make that bike work. He can. He's excellent on the tyres. If they can plug the, the couple of minor holes in their game, then look out for next season because he's, he's going to be right up there yet again because the Ducati GP17 took huge strides this forward compared to where the 16 was last year. Um, so yeah, Ducati and Dovi have held up their end of the deal. Like, like Dovi's over delivered. It's now up to Ducati now mm. to really give him the chance to, you know, to, to really, really take the fight to Marquez because the way he's going right now, um, whew, like, he, like this, this isn't going to be a golden chance. This is going to be, well, we've got to be contending. Here. Yeah, shout out to Gigi Delinia as well on that. He's another of the MVPs Absolutely. of this year for really helping um, Ducati make that step forward. Um, and just to prove how Ducati certainly aren't leaving any more stones unturned, they're going to keep trying to make that next step up. Is this preseason test which got underway this week in Valencia? I couldn't believe the image I saw of um, Tito Rabat, who's just signed for the Avintia Ducati team. Um, who was sat in his garage doing a debrief after one of his testing runs, and there talking to him was Gigi Delinia of Ducati. That he's the fact right. that he, he's going down to their essentially skint privateer team on a two-year-old bike, and he's still desperate for information and desperate for feedback and data from Tito Rabat, who's just joined the team, who's just joined right. the Avintia team, and Gigi Delinia wants to know what he thinks of the Ducati. Like they're not leaving any stones unturned here to try and make that step up and join. Um, well, they've, they've already joined the elite, but to become the elite, to become the best team and the best bike on the grid. Um, and they're going to keep going until they get there, and uh, we wish them the very best on that. Um, as far as this season, then, and the way the title was decided, it, it's amazing, really, when you go back through this season, Dre. And if we go back to the first quarter of the season, where we essentially thought this was going to be a Yamaha benefit, we essentially thought this was going to be a battle between Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi. Maverick Vinales, who won the first two races of the season at Acanta, in Qatar and Argentina, of course, Argentina, he perhaps wouldn't have won had Mark Marquez not crashed out of the lead in that race. Um, Vinales would then crash out of Cota, as Marquez did what he always does around there and win, um, to allow Valentino Rossi to lead the championship after rounds three and four. Um, Rossi, of course, would leave Jerez, a race that the Repsol Hondas would dominate. 
as championship leader. And uh, one of the key moments, or what we thought was a key moment during the season, turned out actually not to matter. The final lap of Le Mans, which we almost forget, and, and we'll be able to talk about it much more at length um, in a couple of weeks when we do our MotoGP season review show. But it's amazing to think back now to that race where we thought that this was going to be a key moment in the championship between Vinales and Rossi and the final lap of Le Mans, which Vinales won. And in the end, how insignificant that became. Yeah, it's it's like if like it's a tale of two championships. With Yamaha, it was a case of what the first five rounds looked like. At that stage, then, you could not see another rider winning the championship not in blue. Yeah, Vinales and Rossi were going to run away there. That, that's all I was thinking. I was, I was like, okay, guys, if you're going to start winning now, would be a pretty good time. <laughs> like the first the first five races, um, you know, it, it looked bad, and now. Whew, um, the, like the second half of the season and, and a little bit more than that, maybe the other 13 races where Yamaha had one win in those other 13 rounds. Disaster. Unmitigated disaster for Yamaha. And they've got, they've, Lynn Jarvis is going to have to explain himself to the shareholders at this rate because this was poor. Like, like this is, this is, this is unacceptable performance from a team that went all out to get Maverick. He's their key piece for the future. And Maverick didn't win a race after Le Mans. Like, he went, he's gone 13 races without a win now. Yeah, Rossi has gone 11 races without a win after he won a Lassen. Like, I know Rossi broke his leg, but he's never really looked like in contention for a win since then. It's, it's a bizarre state of affairs for Yamaha, who have had to... You know, they, they, they admitted at the 11th hour, they ran the 2016 bike in the race itself. And because of the lack of setup time, Vinales really struggled and Rossi was only able to finish fifth, but way off the pace for the win. Um, I know he doesn't like Valencia very much, but again, no matter which way you slice it, just a disaster weekend for Yamaha again. Yeah, he doesn't like Valencia, Rossi, but he beat Vinales by 20 seconds. Vinales was 12th uh, in the Grand Prix in Valencia. And it's a story that, um, perhaps for the benefit of Vinales, we'll get brushed under the carpet given what else happened in that race. But it almost seems... Uh, I, I can't believe that happened now. That Man Vinales, this time last year, absolutely dominated the post-race test on his first two days as a Yamaha rider. He topped both days in the test, was lapping in the 129s around Valencia. And just how, how the mighty have fallen. Vinales didn't even get out of Q1 last weekend um, in Valencia. And a KTM did. Um, and knocked Vinales out of there. Um, and it just shows how how desperately badly their season has gone since the heights of Le Mans, where the two riders had an absolute thriller up the front, Rossi and Vinales fighting for the victory, and Vinales essentially forcing Rossi into a last-lap mistake to win the Grand Prix. Davizioso, as Dre mentioned earlier on, would really arrive with his victory at Mugello, beating Vinales to win that Grand Prix um, at his home Grand Prix, and Ducati's home Grand Prix, of course. But in many ways, the true arrival as Davizioso, not just as a race-winning contender, Dre, but as a title contender, came next time out in Catalonia, where we had the extraordinary conditions there of baking hot conditions a circuit that essentially wasn't really fit for purpose given how low the grip was and how heavily it was wearing the tires out um it really demanded uh, a rider with uh, a strong brain on him and davizioso was clearly that rider yeah that's where he stood out most in those races with low grip scenarios and you know not understanding how the michelin's played up on track it was dovi's intelligence that shined through he judged the pace perfectly he was able to manage himself very, very well, and he's the one that ultimately came out on top, and that was when we really started to see Dovi arrive this season, and 
it wouldn't be the first time we'd praise him for for smart riding in a, you know, in, in when he was basically in an unknown, which was those conditions. Mm, it was, and from there on in, from the race after that at Aston, where Valentino Rossi won a race, it was essentially the Honda Ducati show. Um, no one else won a race besides Honda and Ducati after that, and with the exception of last weekend, no one besides Marquez and Dovi would win a race. And <laughs> as much as the sexy ring was a key result for, for Marquez, where he beat um, the brilliant rookie Jonas Volga to win that Grand Prix in Germany, <laughs> one of the results that really, and one of the rides that stands out for me, Dre, is Bruno. Round 10, Mark Marquez didn't just win that race, but he frankly, in flag-to-flag conditions, made them all look amateurish embarrassing and that's what it was it was it was a complete destruction from from marquez and again he 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 knows better than anybody else i can handle these treacherous conditions so he can come in a lap earlier than everybody else and if if there's one thing we've learned from flag to flag races is if, if you can change first and come out in front and handle the change you'll make 10 seconds a lap on the guy on the wet tire still and I still don't understand why many of the other competitors there left it to maybe like lap five or six like Johan Zarco did before changing bikes around. Because I know Zarco is a rookie and he'll learn these things, but it, it, like, it was a disaster. Like the Ducatis didn't have bikes ready and, you know, like Alicia Spagaro was caught in a, in a you know, nasty TO team order, not team order situation, but like a pit lane scenario where he and he and only banged into each other. And, and that story that came out around the time that we laughed at, I think, when it first came out that, oh, Mark Marquez, apparently he was letting people through on the back straight so they didn't see him come in the pits. Apparently, Dre, that was absolutely true. <laughs> wow! hey his tires were absolutely ruined he was going to come in anyway but he essentially it was true that he did not want his rivals to spot him pitting so he let them by on the run to the pits which i just think is incredible the mental capacity this guy has in those kind of scenarios sets him apart it's so for races what said on twitter after the race like i think the phrase was online in the land of the blind the one-eyed marquez is king um yes yeah like i i I never knew that was a thing but if that is true that is ridiculous um quite frankly but again that he's just he's just got a level of flag to flag now that is i think he's won every single flag to flag race moto gp that's if the rule came into effect he's 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 a genius at this and like the 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 gauging the perception and the conditions and knowing when it's dry enough to come in, he, he's a genius for that. It's no longer a fluke. He's he's done it time and time again, and he's just got that level of of, of ability and just nous in those wet conditions where if I can keep it upright, he'll win, and that's exactly what he's done. Hmm. Austria was a key round as well in in the story of Marquez versus Davizioso this season, where many many times Dre we've seen it, particularly up against guys like Lorenzo. Um, to a lesser extent, Rossi, because we've seen Rossi beat Marquez in head-to-heads in the past where they've tended to come to blows on track. Um, Marquez, I would say, has a fear factor in head-to-head races on the final lap, but he's a very, very difficult guy to beat. Um, but Argent- uh, Austria, sorry, was the first time, really, where we saw Davizioso beat Marquez in a head-to-head. And again, we saw that mental toughness that Davizioso has, of his ability to keep his cool in those kind of scenarios. And... I agree with Julian Ryder um, when he said after his final MotoGP commentary last weekend that one of his abiding images of the season was that nonchalant hand wave of Dibizioso after Marquez had tried it on at the final corner. Yeah, it was it was a line of, uh, what are you doing, young buck, so to speak, on this one? Um, yeah, again, that was one of the images of the year. It was Marquez in that audacious last corner lunge and... 
I think the line Marquez said after this was like, I, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I hadn't had a go at it, quite frankly. And it didn't work out on this occasion. And yeah, like Marquez went 0 for 2 in those dogfights against Dovi this year. It was it was one of those key moments of the season, but it was one that showed that, yeah, Dovi can win the tough ones too. Mm, it was. Mark Marquez would then go on to, well, suffer for an uncharacteristic for Honda engine failure at Silverstone, which again let Dovi in to take victory there. Um, his second consecutive victory, which gave him the championship lead um, with six races of the season to go. Marquez would then take it back with back-to-back victories at Mizano and Aragon before the thriller at Mategi in the wet conditions. But um, unfortunately, Dre, from a Ducati point of view, their championship charge really ran out of puff, ran out of steam at Phillip Island around a circuit where none of the Ducatis really worked. And uh, a really a contrasting race for the two time contenders. Davizzi also struggling badly for pace on a circuit that really isn't made for Ducatis, finishing in 13th. And Mark Marquez winning one of the all time classics that we've ever seen in a MotoGP race. Yeah, that wasn't a race, it was a punch up. Um, a drunken punch up with a table being thrown in the background. Um, it was fun. Um, I've never seen so many bits of opposing teams' bike and lever on other riders before. But uh, yeah, they all seem to absolutely enjoy it as well. Yeah, they they all loved it. Like everyone's like, well, like Johan Zarco like clearly is very well trained in in the art of fisticuffs, but but um, yeah, you're absolutely right. That I think was the dagger for Davizioso in that sense where Ducati, who very weirdly were super strong there a couple of years ago in the past, you know, you know, and being able to run very well around Phillip Island a couple of years ago, he and only when you know, he was taking time out of his busy schedule of headbutting seagulls. <laughs> Um, instead, like they were very strong around there, and this time around they just weren't. They were not able to get used to the circuit, and no Ducati finished in the top ten. It was ridiculous, and that was the dagger because not only did Dovi struggle to score points in that one, Marquez won that race in the end convincingly, and that that point swing was enough to really effectively end the fight, so to speak, and. I always said Marquez was going to be really strong around Phillip Island, and he was. I just didn't think Dovi would be that poor, and that might have been all she wrote, all she wrote really, for for Ducati in the 2017 season. It was, and even though they took a one-two at Sepang to take it to the finale, to take it to the wire, um, as we've discussed, it wasn't quite enough for Ducati. Andrea Davizioso, a gallant runner-up, and uh, he's contributed so much to this season, deserves so much credit and uh, when we get to our awards show in uh, in December um, we'll know how to discuss Davizioso again in that one um, Mark Marquez though doing enough in the end to win the world championship um, in what was one of the great MotoGP seasons any of us have ever seen it's a measure of just how many stories there have been in this season and indeed last weekend that we are pretty much 40 minutes into this show Dre talking about the MotoGP race last weekend and we still haven't discussed the fight for the victory um, which is incredible um, and the final lap in the end came down to Danny Petrosa and Joan Zarco another guy who has contributed so so much to this season and again poor Danny Pedrosa will take a grumpy victory that no one will ever talk about um, and no offence to Danny Pedrosa, and I don't intend any offence to Danny Pedrosa, but with Joan Zarco leading on to that final lap, Dre, I've never wanted to see a guy win a race more. Me, I was like, okay, the Ducatis are down, Marquez is out of it. Come on, Zarco! <laughs> yeah. uh, I was like, come on, Zarco, this is your one right All here. All the season like, is needed that it hasn't had so far is a Zarco win. Come on. Like, Pedrosa, this is all your fault. Um, why must you ruin? Why, why must you ruin nice things? Why can't we have nice things and have Zarco? It would have been a perfect bookend for the yeah. season if Zarco 
given he was so close to winning the first race of yeah, the season. From leading the first lap of the season to leading the last. <clears throat> it, it would have been really fun if he, if he had been able to win the last race of the season on top of that, but it wasn't to be. But a, a, a valiant effort from Zarco yet again. And again, it just sums up how brilliant he's been all season. Ends the year as rookie of the year and top independence. Um, and Leo led pretty much the entire race um, on that one and, you know, was was competitive the whole way through and only lost out on the win by less than a second. It's the best Zarko has looked on a MotoGP bike all year. And that's saying something given how good he's been on this bike this year. So by any measure, a phenomenal job from Zarko and a great professional ride from Danny Pedrosa who did exactly what he needed to do to help Marquez win the championship. Um, again, it's a shame it's, it's, it's not going to be talked about again, like because it's it's just the nature of Danny Pedrosa. He, like, again, people say that he should be replaced, but you realise, well, who could you get that can be such a such a you know a model professional and a fantastic cleanup guy for Honda and Pedrosa is? And again, he's done it again. He, he pulls these out two or three times a year where Pedrosa just breaks out another brilliant performance. And this is what, exactly what it was. He was. He was silent. He stuck around. He took advantage of those that around him that made mistakes, and he, and he got the job done. He can't ask for any more than that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just uh, I'm just searching up the Danny Pedrosa stats, by the way, in terms of, you know, I mean, this guy, he's not won the MotoGP World Championship, which will always, I guess, um, nag away at him That's in his career. Premier that is his 31 now. Premier Class victories. Um, and across all classes now, that is, let's do the maths, 46. That's his 54th Grand Prix victory. In all classes, concluding his two ties in with Mick Divin all the time. Yeah, and and that's what we're talking about in Danny Pedrosa. That's the kind of level he's at, and he just unfortunately he doesn't look as if he's going to get that MotoGP title um, to go with um, his titles in the lower classes, just to cement him as one of the all-time greats. And I think if he won a Premier Class title, he would be considered one of the all-time greats. He'd belong in that conversation, Danny Pedrosa. Um, he still is. He's a five foot two, eight stone man that is able to ride a two hundred and fifty horsepower bike and win thirty one races against some of the best fuels you've ever seen in the sport. He is one of the all time greats, <laughs> at least in my opinion. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 struggle, I struggle to disagree. I mean, if you go through his just his MotoGP career, um, which of course is now in its uh, the end of its twelfth season, all with Repsol Honda. His end of season championship position has been fifth, second, third, third, second, fourth, second, third, fourth, fourth, sixth, fourth. <laughs> you know, this guy, I mean, this guy just does not have a bad season. Or if he has a bad season, it's fifth or sixth at worst. That's a bad season for Danny Pedrosa. And and as you say, whenever Mark Marquez isn't there to mop up for Epsil Honda, they've got a guy in Danny Pedrosa who is always good enough to, to pick up the second, pick up the pieces from him. And in any other team, without Mark Marquez around, Danny Pedrosa would be, he'd be a good enough lead man for any of the other factory teams out there, wouldn't he? He's, he's, he's that good. And... I think it's it's right that in a race weekend where he doesn't get really talked about for winning the race, that we do talk about it. And really, it did appear to me, much like Mark Marquez was sort of buying his time and in the end kind of got too excited when he took the lead and then he fell off um, down at turn one. Danny Pedrosa, again, just seemed to have the measure of Zarco. Even when he was following with a lap to go, he just waited till the last lap to go, struck at turn one, and then Zarco had no right of reply. No, nothing. Nothing Zarco could do. Um, simple as that. Just did what he had to do to get the job done. Timed it to perfection. Pulled away again. He's the consummate professional. It's what he does. And if he sees the opportunity, he will pick his spot. He will take it. And again, like he rode so well on that last lap, there was nothing anybody could. You know, there was nothing Zarko could do. No chance of reply. No instant response. Nothing. It shut the door in Zarko's face. Nothing Zarko could do. You know, t- takes. 
Uh, it takes a, a, a great, great victory. Again, it's 31st in the in the top flight class, 54th of his career, which ties him for Mick Doohan in the, on the all-time wins list. Um, I know Doohan's are all in the 500cc group, so you know you can you can talk about the quality of wins on another day amongst yourselves. But yeah, like Pedrosa is, is an all-time great. He's a consummate professional, and again, like I said, there is no one better at what Pedrosa can do with that bike in that team than what Pedrosa is. And again, he, I think he'll have that seat as long as he wants to keep going because. He he always does what is asked of him, and he is the ultimate perennial contender. And there is there is some value in that. Yeah, and you can argue he played uh, the perfect teammate role as well in that finale by almost keeping a bike between Marquez and the Ducatis. He was the bike between them throughout that race, which was a key role that he played as well. Uh, and for Zarco as well, we we have to mention him. I mean, as I mentioned, I've, I've I've very rarely wanted to see a guy win a race more than I wanted Zarco to win on that final lap. But even with second place, it's his career best in MotoGP. Just three tenths of a second off the winner. And if anything else could illustrate, Dre, just how impressive he was, the next Yamaha was 13 seconds back down the road. Yeah, says it all, really. Again, they were all on the same bike. They were all on the same bike. I know the factory team didn't didn't really have a lot of time to set this thing up, but no matter which way you slice it, Zarco was was on the same bike as Vavrik Vignales and Valentino Rossi and watched the floor with them. Um, it says a lot about about the state of the factory team at Yamaha and for Zarco's ability that he's able to get a grip on this 2016 bike as well as anybody has on the 2017 Yamaha. He's done a phenomenal job all year long. And that was another, you know, a strong message to Lynn Jarvis and, and, and the movie star Yamaha boys that... Uh, the man is quality. You might want to take some words from, of advice from him because the guy knows what he's doing. Yeah, and I, I, like I said, I desperately wanted him to to win that Grand Prix, not just for him, but also for Hervé Poncheral, who still waits for his Tech 3's first MotoGP Premier Class victory because um, they've won in the Moto2 class before. Um, but I really wanted them to win that race. But it wasn't to be, but you do get that feeling, the way he's going, that it's surely going to be a matter of when rather than if Jean Zarco wins a MotoGP race um, at the rate he is going. Um He's been a sensational rookie this season, and the fact that he's been so good has almost taken the shine away from one of the other rookies who, who's had a great season um, and had his best results so far in MotoGP, Dre. It was almost forgotten again, given what happened in the race weekend, but when you look at the results, it just stands out like a sore thumb. Alex Rins finished fourth. I'm going to dip my paperweight in gold and ship it to Spain for Alex Rins, because that was a fantastic performance, and... Again, we mentioned it, like Rins, like him in the top 10 is no longer a coincidence. Like, it is a regular occurrence Beat now. Valentino Rossi in a straight fight for fourth. You you cannot say any more than that. He is a rookie. Yeah. Um, it's easy to forget that, given that Zarco and Volga have taken a lot of the rookie headlines away this year. But Rins has been superb the second half of this season. And that sums it up better than well. He was one spot away from ruining Suzuki's secret plan to get their concessions <laughs> yes. back. Uh, if they, because if they got on the podium, then they, they wouldn't be able to keep. They, they wouldn't get their concessions back, and now they do. And Rins got the best possible result. They got the best of both worlds in. So Rins again, a true professional there for, for helping Suzuki out and having his best result of the year and Suzuki's best result of the year in fourth place. Um, brilliant result. Like Rins is going to be a future team leader and I think a future alien in the sport the way he's going because. Again, he's been fantastic the second half of this season. And again, he, him in the top six to eight is no longer a coincidence. He's done a fantastic job. Yeah, and uh, it just it gives you the so it's the appetite as to what he could do next year. Both he and Yanone, because Suzuki have really just come on strong towards the end of the season. But Maverick Vinales' best result in his rookie MotoGP season for Suzuki was sixth. 
And Alex Rins has had a fall. Vinales didn't get on the podium until the fifth race of year two. Um, now, granted, of course, that was also year two for Suzuki um, as a team. So they were having to learn, much like the rider was. Uh, but Alex Rins' results, as the season reached its end, stack up with anything that Vinales did as a rookie on Suzuki as well. Um, so I cannot wait to see what he does next year with a full preseason without injuries. Touch wood, because of course preseason hasn't really started yet. Um, but let's <laughs> hope that Alex Rins gets a clear run at it next season because he is an absolute stellar talent. Every bit as good as the likes of Zarko and Volga, who've lit up this 2017 season as rookies. Um, we mentioned the Movistar Yamahas. Rossi was fifth, Vinales 12th. That's about all that there is to say, unfortunately, for them about that. Um, but one of the other sort of lesser mentioned stories of the race weekend was the battle of the satellite Hondas, who were kind of promoted up the order as the Ducatis fell out late on. Um, but the first of the satellite Hondas, for one, Stray, was not Kyle Crutchlow. It was Jack Miller. And, and this is another guy who's ended the season very strongly because he returned from his injury at Phillip Island and led the Grand Prix for, for uh, several laps. And he's now ended the year by beating Kyle Crutchlow on equal machinery. Yeah, that's a really, really great job from Jack Miller. Again, another guy that very quietly has gone about his business. And it wasn't so long ago that Mark VVS were by far the bottom feeders of MotoGP struggling on that Honda. And Jack Miller has dragged them into, you know, borderline top 10 result. I mean, just two points behind Jonas Volga in a spot for top 10 in the championship in the end um, with 82 points. But again, they're finishing the year with 7th, 8th and 7th. Great results from, from Jack Miller and... He's become a real asset for the Honda unit, which is why he's leaving and gone to Chicane. Of course. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. Totally makes sense, that. But um, hey, the idea of a GP17 must have been very alluring to him. Mm. And I can't blame him because he's been he's been great this season. Again, he's, he's found another level in himself that is now, again, another guy that you expect to be in the top 10 week in, week out because he's he's, he's finally getting the grips of that MotoGP bike and he's, he's done a great job with it. Yeah, and um, just again, illustrates two things first of all it illustrates just how deep the com- the competition how deep the quality is in MotoGP that we're talking about guys like Jack Miller who we've barely mentioned all season but yeah he could still spring up and perform like this um, but also the test that's followed is also illustrated kind of just why Jack Miller wanted to jump on that Ducati because um, as we'll tell you later on he's been very quick on it already um, the MotoGP result then Danny Pedrosa the winner for the second time this season from Joan Zarco and Mark Marquez third place winning him the world title uh, in the end, ahead of Alex Rins in fourth, Valentino Rossi fifth, ahead of Iannone on the second, Suzuki sixth, Jack Miller seventh, Carl Crutchlow eighth, Michele Pirro, um, everyone's favourite policeman, in ninth uh, on the wildcard, Ducati, and Tito Rabat up in tenth on the second of the Mark VDS Hondas. Now, eleventh went to Bradley Smith on the KTM, which might not sound like much of a result worth mentioning, but it is worth mentioning, Dre, because hallelujah, KTM did not finish bottom, which I think says more about uh, a prettier than KTM, but hey, worth celebrating. Burn it to the ground. Um, no, in, in, the, in the words of KTM, yeah, this is this is a phenomenal achievement. Again, they've started pretty much from scratch this year and they weren't the worst team in the field and they've made so much progress. They've overtaken Aprilia, which, again, says a lot about Aprilia's disaster fire of a season. Yeah. But by any measure, like the improvement of KTM, I mean, it says it all that Paul Spagaro took his temp engine for the year, but only because they made so much progress. Yeah, their, their new engine wouldn't fit with the old chassis. Exactly. Sadly, it wasn't to be with him finishing the race. Again, another guy that's had a fantastic season, Paul Espargaro. Mm. Um, but Bradley Smith, again, was, this time it was Bradley that would, that would uh, pick up the key points, finishing in 11th place. One place ahead of Maru Vinales. <laughs> <laughs> 
says it already, doesn't it? And uh, yeah, Bradley Smith, those those critical five points would be enough to put them um, into tenth overall in the team. So they were ahead of Avincia as well. They were nine points ahead of Avincia. Um, they had 17 more points than Aprilia as a team by the time it was all said and done. So, yeah, this was not a marginal fluke. They were legitimately a team that was getting stronger and stronger as the year went, went on. I think if the template was another three or four rounds, they probably would have overtaken Aspar by the time they got to the end of the season as well. So they weren't bottom. They weren't even second from the bottom. Uh, they were in the top 10 for the teams as well. So, again, startling progress. And the sky's the limit for this team. They seem to be getting better and better as the weekends go on. So much so you've now bought a cap. Mm. You fanboy. Oh no, that was that was simply because I had to finally had the money to buy one. Um since <laughs> since, uh, since Bradis has been riding for the whole year, I'd have bought that in March if I could afford to, but unfortunately I couldn't. Um but uh but yeah, um the championship standings as it's finished, we'll get on to KTM and their championship position in a second. Um but the riders championship finishes like this. Mark Marquez the champion um, by a, in the end, slightly flattering margin, I suppose, of 37 points over Andre de Vizioso in second. Uh, he ends 31 clear of Maverick Vinales in third. Danny Pedroza, with his win, jumps ahead of Valentino Rossi for fourth. Had Rossi beaten Rins to the finish, he might have still taken that. Um, but as it is, Pedroza, by two points, beats Rossi to fourth. Um, Joan Zarco finishes in sixth. Top rookie, top independent. Um, pretty much top of everything in our eyes this season. He's been brilliant. Jorge Lorenzo, seventh. Danilo Petrucci ends the year in 8th, um, ahead of Cal Crutchlow, ninth. Jonas Folger, uh, and I think he deserves this, given his uh, fact that he didn't really contest the final four rounds, still ends the year in the top 10 in the World Championship, um, which I think he deserves. 10th overall for him on 84 points, awesome. 2 ahead of Jack Miller in 11th. Bautista, 12th. Andrea Inoni, 13th. Scott Redding, who leaves Ducati for a pretty up 14th. Alicia Spargo, his future teammate, 15th on 62 points. Alex Rins, 16th on 59 he only ended the year 11 points behind his teammate, Andre Inone, and despite missing the first half of the season, essentially, due to injury. Paul Aspargo, 17th on 55, ahead of Loris Baz, who we'll tell you about later on, because he's off to World Superbikes. 18th on 45 for him. Tito Rabat on 35. Carol Abraham on 32, finishes 20th. Bradley Smith, 21st on 29 points. He leapfrogged Hector Barbara on the final round of the season. He finishes his final MotoGP season, we expect, 22nd overall. Essentially, the last of the regular riders, with one exception. That's Sam Lowe's, who finished the year 25th, behind Michele Piro and Mika Calio, who only made occasional appearances. The other two-point scorers for the season, Katsuki Nakasuga and Sylvain Gintoli, who scored that one point when he uh, deputised at Suzuki, whilst Alex Rins was recovering from his injury. Constructors' Championship, Honda win it on 357. Yamaha, courtesy of that double DNF for Ducati, jumped back into second in the manufacturers in that final round. Um, so that was one consolation they could take. They finished as the runner-up in the Constructors' Championship. Ducati ended up third. Suzuki fourth. As we mentioned, KTM jumped ahead of Aprilia on the final round for fifth and sixth. And Repsol Honda are the team's champions. They beat Movistar Yamaha by 70 points with Ducati in third. And Monster Yamaha Tech 3, a clear fourth, just ahead of Premac and Suzuki, who finished the year in sixth. Get on to Moto Three at the pretty much the hour mark in this show. Let's get on to Moto Three, and um, 
Moto3 did deliver a good news story in its final race of the season, even if it wasn't necessarily the greatest race of the season uh, in the lightweight class. Um, they never tend to be when we see a rider running out at the front and dominating the race because we're so used to seeing these pack fights in Moto3 and we almost uh, expect these and look forward to these and we're disappointed when we don't get them. Um, but on this occasion, Dre, I think we could make one exception. We were kind of more than happy to see Jorge Martin run away and dominate because he's earned this first win and he's deserved it. Absolutely. Um, he's been phenomenal. Um, again, all season long, his, his one-lap speed has been truly sensational. Um, and yeah, like this was coming. It was always coming with Jorge Martin, and, and I'm, I'm glad he's finally been able to put that one together. He's, he's done a great, great job. Um all season long and yeah as he said like he got out in front was able to clear the guys in front of him who were fighting each other and yeah he just recently ran his own race and was you know multiple seconds clear everybody in the end and popped a humongous wheelie going over the line yeah. well played sir yeah. but um, uh yeah brilliant job from martin yeah and he uh, he actually left the weekend also with a lightweight class record of nine pole positions for the season um, which is freaking unbelievable. Nine pole positions, and he would have had a tenth had he not got a group penalty at Mugello earlier in the year as well. Um, the guy is insane over one lap, and he proved at the weekend that, given a bit of a break at the front, he can be pretty good over 24 laps as well. Um, and a well-earned first win sets him up nicely for next season when he will hope to compete for the World Championship. And, uh, hey, we've seen with other guys in the past when they've ended one year with their first win, they've got on to take a bunch of them and perhaps a title the following season. So we'll see if Jorge Martin can do that in 2018 and um, in many ways though the uh, world champion still stole the show Ho uh, Joan Mir who went into this final round looking to make his own piece of history and tie Valentino Rossi for 11 victories in a lightweight class season which Rossi set on the way to his 125 title in 1997 Joan Mir didn't do that in the end Dre because of Gabby Rodrigo crashing in front of him on the third lap of the race and uh, dropping Joan Mir all the way down to a very distant 19th position in the race um, but that being Joan Mir, he still finished second. Because, of course, uh, <laughs> he's just been so good, hasn't he? Yet again, he's just another case where you, you, you throw him in a tough jam and he's still able to claw his way up the field. He was he was sensational. Um, I, like David Emmett said, that, well, he said like, Listen, that was a truly special ride from the man in second. And he reckoned that his race time, if he bar the, the early incidents, he was probably four or five seconds faster than Jorge Martin's race time was, which is insane, given that Martin was in open air for the majority of that race. Um, so again, like his level of pace is is is, is ridiculous. He, he's a, he's a special talent, Joanne. There, uh, we've not seen a guy like him in the lightweight class since Mark Marquez, and it wasn't the win this time round, but it might as well have been because that was a phenomenal, phenomenal performance. Yeah, he was like a hot knife through butter in that race. It reminded me so much of Brad Binder's ride in the same race last year where he came from a similarly low position on the first lap of the race to win it, um, which which was incredible. Uh, John may not quite be able to do that because of the fact that, that Jorge Martin had made that early break and he goes up to Moto2 next season with Mark Vidias as the dominant champion. And he also does claim the record, Dre. We talked about Jonathan Ray this time last week, but Jorge Martin um, ends the year with the highest ever lightweight class points tally for a season. 341 points um, which is which is insane uh, for, for Joan Mir that's what he finished this season as um, which if you average that out over the season means that Jorge Mart uh, Joan Mir averaged out 19 points a race that's insane so is it an average finishing position of basically two points probably 2.1 or something yeah. that's 
that's ridiculous. That's absolutely insane. Um, just a model of consistency all the way through, barely outside of the points all season long, barely outside, barely off the podium all season long. He's just yeah. been that great, and yeah, like I'm, I'm not, I'm like I'm not entirely surprised he's been this strong because, yeah, he's, he's he, again, it's, it's just superb stuff from 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 me all year long, and he's he's barely put a foot wrong all season, and yeah. What a point tally, and again, another mark of just how special his season has been. Yeah, absolutely brilliant for him. He finished second at the end, just ahead of Marcos Ramirez, who um, produced one of those very rare occurrences in 2017, that's a KTM finishing on the podium. Um, he finished in third position, and with that, finished as the top KTM rider in the championship. Um, and I think, Dre, given the season he's had, that sounds about right. It does. I mean, I think Honda has clearly been the superior bike this season. Um, they've they've put one over on KTM's Moto Three, and I think I think they're focusing their efforts um, elsewhere by 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 the by that, by that season. Um, so yeah, like again, it's not worked out for KTM in Moto Three this year. But Marco Ramirez has been the shining example of that of, of all the KTM runners all year long. Early on, not so much in the middle, but at the start, and definitely he's come along strong again towards the end of the year. Him and Darren Binder and the Platinum Bay team, I think, have been the two strongest looking KTM's at times. And yeah, no coincidence that uh, Marcos has finished the year as top as top KTM. He's been great on that bike, and hopefully, better things for him next year. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Where well, he stays with that Platinum Bay Real Estate team, although the team does change names for next year. Um, but Ramirez is staying with that team, so we look forward to what he can do next year and whether he can make that step up and become a real title contender and win some Grand Prix next year. Who would put it past him? Um, in fourth position was Romano Fanati, who finally bows out of Moto3, um, having spent uh, six years in the class. Didn't quite round it off with a podium. He finished in fourth position um, from a pretty lowly grid slot. Um, but Dre, he does finish as the runner-up in the championship, and he finishes, actually, um, with 248 points, um, which in many seasons would be pretty close to being outright champion, but as it is, he's 93 off the outright winner. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but a decent enough season in the end. If Joan Mir wasn't here, um, I think we'd be talking in much more glowing terms about Romano Fanati's campaign, because he's quite clearly been the number two guy this year. Yeah, again, as Fanati quite rightly said, it's been the best year of his career, and there's no argument for that. Like, he has been great this season. He has been the clear number two guy in the championship. We're just dealing with a, with a historic talent here in, in, in this year, and the year that Fanati probably would have been a title contender in any other season, but Mir has had one hand on the title since the summer break. Um, so, yeah, like, like by any measure, Fanati is you know, shaken off some of that bad boy reputation and has got his head down and has rode pretty well this year. So I'm glad he's leaving the class behind. He's got moving on to bigger things in Moto2 because this wasn't a solid year for him to move up with. Mm, yeah, I'm just thinking to myself while we're discussing Moto3, I don't know how on earth we're going to discuss um, or finally decide the rider of the year when we get to the awards show next month. We've got Marquez, we've got Dovizioso, we've got Zarco, we've got Mia, we've got Jonathan Ray. Um, I don't quite know how we're going to decide that one. I've, I've been thinking about this one in the last few weeks and I've still not, I've still not narrowed it down below those five. Um, it's been a year of incredible, incredible performances and Mia uh, in the end has uh, made everyone, including Romano Fanati, look very much second rate, which is more of a praise to what Mia's done rather than the to take anything away from Fanati, who's had a very, very good season. He finished fourth last weekend, second in the championship, and Air Bastianini was next up in fifth, ahead of Juan Frank Guevara in sixth. And then completing the top ten from seventh to tenth were two wild cards. Um, and Dre, we saw this guy uh, appear at Aragon, um, Dennis Foggia, and we seeing with every passing weekend that we see this guy, just why he's dominated the Junior World Championship this year. 
Yeah, the guy's the guy's been in the class like two races. He's acting like he's been there three seasons already. He's he's fit, like he he's not intimidated by talent in this class whatsoever. Um, again, like he's fearless. Again, again, just aggressive. Has no problem being at the front. No problem leading a group. No problem being aggressive. He's going to be one to watch next season because uh, yeah, like you can see why he's junior champion. The guy is very very talented indeed. Very fast in the junior series. He's going to walk right into the world championship proper next year, and I reckon he'll be in the top five or six. I think he's going to be one to look out for. Very, very talented kid. He's going to be uh, he's going to be giving Bulliger a bit of a hurry up, isn't he, in that team as his uh, teammate to him next year at Sky VL46. Bulliger, who we wish all the very best. He suffered that horrendous crash on Friday in pre-practice uh, where uh, Rodrigo, I think it was. No, in fact, it was Antonelli. Uh, I knew it was one of the serial crashes. Got the wrong one. Um, it was uh, Antonelli who crashed ahead of him in pre-practice and basically brought uh, Paul Bulliger down and broke his ankle. Um, so um, he hasn't been able to test this week and we'll hope to see him back on a bike in the new year. Um, but yeah, he'll have Fodgy alongside him in that Skyview Pro 6 team next year and that is a strong, strong lineup. The other wild card that I mentioned, Kazuki Masaki, who finished in 10th position for the Asia Talent Team. He is the Red Bull Rookies Champion um, for 2017 and the Asia Talent Cup Champion, um, succeeding his fellow compatriot, uh, Ayumu Sasaki. Um, who won those two titles last season. Uh, Masaki will not be racing in Moto3 next year. He will be heading the Junior World Championship route next season. Um, so keep an eye out for him in that championship next season. But um, he is part of this new wave of Japanese riders that are really bursting on the scene, along with the likes of Sasaki and Suzuki. Um, Masaki is going to be another of those. He impressed on his debut outing last weekend in Valencia to finish 10th, ahead of his compatriot Suzuki. Uh, in that race. The overall result then, Martin the winner from Mia and Ramirez, with Fanati, Bastianini 4th and 5th, Guevara 6th, Foggia 7th, John McPhee, injured ankle and all, finished 8th, Aaron Canet 9th, he ends the year 3rd overall, and Kazuki Masaki 10th. Championship standings then, Mia the dominant and record-breaking champion, 341 points, he beats Fanati by 93, Aaron Canet finishes the season 3rd, just 3 points in the end, ahead of Jorge Martin in 4th, um, if Canet had dropped a further couple of spots on that final lap, he would have lost third in the championship to Martin. Um, Fabio Di Gian Antonio finishes the year in fifth. Uh, Bastianini sixth ahead of McPhee in seventh. Ramirez top KTM rider eighth ahead of fellow KTM riders Mino and Ertl, who round out the overall top ten. Don't think you really need me to tell you who won the teams and manufacturers championships. Honda won that by a landslide, winning every race bar the one that Mino and KTM won at Mugello earlier this year. Right, Moto2 up next. Um, and Moto2 has really developed a common theme in these closing rounds of the season. It's been all orange uh, and the domination of KTM. Um, and uh, Dre, I think collectively, we have both in the last seven days bet our house and life savings on Miguel Oliveira to win this Moto2 championship next season. All in, baby. All <laughs> in. Uh, it's all in on Miguel Oliveira next year. The guy's, the guy's in a different league at the moment. Um... I don't know what's happened to KTM where they're suddenly the best bike in the field now and Oliveira's now won three in a row. Clearly it's, the best bike. Yeah, like the way it's... I don't know if, if KTM's just found something in their chassis that's just clicked or whether Calix have taken their foot off the pedal now Morbidelli's champion. I don't know what it is, but something has gone on here because Miguel Oliveira... This was the hardest of the three races he's had to win in this, in this hat-trick that he's closed out the year with. He had to he had to earn this one a little bit. But again, he was just taking temps out of Morbidelli. Yeah. Every, he had two seconds to make up in the middle portion of that race. And he did comfortably. 
and you know was able to get ahead, pick his spot, and nobody had an answer for him. And again, Binder was right there again in third. It wasn't quite a hat trick of one twos, but Binder certainly came close um, in that one. Another very strong result for Brad as well. But Miguel Oliveira is in a different post code at the moment. He is he has found something on this bike to make it work because his pace has been sensational the last three rounds and. Again, Frankie's had nothing for him in the last three races, and it might be for the best he's moving up because yeah, if this continues into next season, that like, Oliveira is going to be the man to beat for the title. Yeah, well, I don't think Oliveira will be far behind him. I think he, I think we pretty much both agreed that he's guaranteed to be on a MotoGP bike come 2019. Uh, Miguel Oliveira, he is yep. he's an incredible, incredible talent, and and yeah, as you as you say, it was unlike his previous two wins where he led away from the front um, and dominated. This one, he had to come from behind and. Yeah, as you say, that was what impressed me was the fact that Morbidelli was a couple of seconds clear. This is the by by the way the guy who has just won the world championship um, in brilliant fashion, Morbidelli. So he's pretty much on the crest of a wave and high on confidence. Has won several Grand Prix this year. He's what he's won eight of them this year. Franco Morbidelli. Um, he's been incredible. And yet Miguel Oliveira just relentlessly chased him down, and Morbidelli just simply had no answer at all um, to Oliveira's pace. And then when Oliveira did catch him, he essentially bullied him off the racetrack at turn four. Um, to take the lead and go off and win the race. And Moby Daly just couldn't answer it. Um, and it was incredible and ominous for next year that KTM have made this progress in year one of their bike. And next year, they're going to circuits where they have a race's worth of data uh, from this year. Um, so they're not going to be any worse off than they are already um, come next year. So KTM in an incredible shape uh, heading into next season. And Miguel Oliveira too. Um and as far as Morbidelli is concerned, Dre, he didn't sign off with a victory, much like Joan Mir. He signed off with a second place um, in Moto2. But again, another guy who ends what he's, has been the season of his life and another brilliant campaign with a performance which, with all due respect to the brilliance of Miguel Oliveira, just again demonstrated why Franco is champion because the next Calix on the grid was a full nine seconds further back. Yeah, again. He was the like, only guy that could hold the candle to the KTMs. Yeah, that is why Frankie Morbidelli is champion, because he's just got an extra gear in him. Even in the situation where Calex weren't the best bike out here this weekend, Frankie was able to keep it close, or at least relatively close, and, a sp- and certainly a mile off any other Calex in the vicinity. I'd love to assume that Thomas Uti would have shaken out in all of this, unfortunately, but uh, you know, well, soon Thomas um, on that one. Again, he wasn't here for the test either, which is a real shame. But, um, yeah, Frankie, the best of the KTMs by a mile, and that's the reason why... Oh, my best of the project characters, I should say. But, yeah, the best of them by a mile. Nobody had any sort of answer for him on, on, on this one here, on this one. And, again, it was the best of a, of a bad deal for, for Calix to close out the season. But, yeah, forget Frankie, different class compared to everybody else. And the coolest man in the world as well. well Any time yeah. I see this guy interviewed, the guy just oozes class. He just doesn't seem to be at any stage ever concerned or worried by anything that goes on around him he just seems so chilled um which is incredible i mean i guess when you won a motor two world championship i guess you can allow yourself to be like that can't you um uh-huh. but, but what a rider he's been this year um again it's amazing to think that this time last year he still haven't won a grand prix um in his career um and he's gone on to dominate this year's world championship essentially although thomas Lutti has pushed him most of the way um Morbidelli has always really had this championship um under control um completing the podium once again uh, a very familiar podium for the third race in succession. The same three riders on the podium, albeit in a slightly different order this time, as Franco Morbidelli split the two KTMs. Um, but Brad Binder rounding off his rookie season, let's not forget, in third place. Three consecutive podiums for Binder, who um, 
we shouldn't forget, actually, as I say, not only is he a rookie, but Miguel Oliveira, of course, had that year last year on the KTN. So Binder is a year behind Oliveira, really, in terms of his development as a Moto2 rider. Um, so for all the talk, and we spoke about this a bit pre-show before we started recording, that Oliveira will rightly go into next season as the runaway championship favourite, but I like Brad Binder's chances for next year, too. If he can keep this going, then, yeah, the consistency could play a factor in this. Yeah, Binder's more than got a chance. He's licked himself up into eighth place overall in the championship. But this is a guy who missed three races this season. Um, again, a handful of top five finishes the second half of this season has really got himself together um, since recovering from those awful injuries at the start of the year. And he's he looking like he could belong as a potential title contender. Yeah, you've got to fancy Binder as an outside shot here for next year's title, given, again, strong pace, strong consistency, and strong results in, in the last races. We, you know, we could have closed the year with like maybe five or six straight races in the top six if it wasn't for Masano. Um, so, yeah, Binder's been right up there. And, yeah, keep an eye on him for next season. Definitely one to keep an eye on. Yeah, and I don't know whether you noticed this as well in his in his post-race interviews. And uh, after finishing third, which by any measure for a rookie Moto2 is a great result, but you saw the steely world champion coming through, didn't you? Because he made it pretty clear in his post-race interview, as happy as he was in third, he was not happy at being beaten by his teammate, Miguel Oliveira. He wants to redress that next year. Oh, definitely. Like, again, as you can see, oh, that's the guy that won the Moto3 Championship yeah. like, like, a couple of years ago. And you can see that is that is the guy that, you know, you're seeing that, that World Championship sort of mentality come into play. You don't want to finish five seconds behind your teammate under any circumstance. So, yeah, like certainly one to keep an eye on um, for next year. Again, you, you could see the steel in him come out a little bit there saying, yeah, I want, I know I can do better than this next yeah. year. So let's see, let's see him try because... Uh, Oliveira's been a weapon the second half of this season, and Binder's had to play catch-up a little bit compared to him the way the way the season's played out. But, uh, yeah, maybe next year, uh, with a bit more testing under his belt, maybe next year will be the year. Yeah, what an embarrassment of riches KTM have um, at their disposal for next season across the classes. And uh, what an embarrassment of riches Moto2 has for next year, because Binder did not even win the Rookie of the Year honour this year. That honour went to Francesco Bagnaia, who finished last weekend's Grand Prix Dre, with another outstanding result, he beat Alex Marquez to the flag. The pole man, he beat him to fourth. Yeah, another, another great ride for Manny Ayer. Um, again, yeah, Marquez fading towards the end of that race, and, and Peko picked him off right at the end there. Another top five from Peko. And he's, he's finished every single race this season. One of the few guys to be able to do that in all three classes. So, yeah, for a rookie, a rookie in the class to finish every single race, impressive work, very impressive work indeed. And again, top rookie, fifth overall. Um, yeah, can't argue with that. Again, like he's another guy that teams are going to be lining up to snatch up maybe in 2019 alongside Miguel because uh, with you know like he's going to be another. It's going to be hard for him because this, the class is going to be so stacked next year, but. By any measure, um, a fantastic season for Bandy. He could not have realistically asked for, asked for more on that one. Mm, absolutely. And, and a rookie team, it's worth pointing out as well. Sky VL46, new to Moto2 this season. Um, and they've done a cracking job in that class as well. Arguably, well not arguably, clearly better than their Moto3 team has got on um, this season. Courtesy of Bandy, the team of the cost they booted out of their Moto3 campaign. Uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, Moto2 is looking so strong next season with those riders we've mentioned. The likes of Oliveira, Binder and Banyaya who've been so good this season. Um, and that's not even when you, you factor in the MotoGP guys coming down, the likes of Sam Laws and Hector Barbara joining the class and the likes of Mia and Fanati moving up from Moto3 as well. 
um, who are looking as if they're going to be very, very strong next season as well. Moto2 next season should be fantastic. Um, here's how this year's campaign has finished then. Starting with the final race result, Oliveira the winner for the third race in a row from Morbidelli and Binder. Banyaya in fourth ahead of Marquez. Hafiz Sayarin rounds the season off with sixth ahead of the outgoing Takaki Akagami, who's off to MotoGP, of course. Uh, he finished his final Moto2 race in seventh ahead of Fabio Quartararo, another rookie who's had his fair share of good results. He was eighth ahead of Simone Corsi in his last race of speed up and Dominic Agata for the beleaguered Kiefer team, um, racing in the honour of their late team boss, Stefan Kiefer, uh, Dominic Egeter, finishing in 10th position. Final championship standings then, Morbidelli the champion. Again, a championship-winning margin that kind of flatters him. He wins it by 65 points from Thomas Lutti, who in the end only finished two points ahead of Miguel Oliveira in third place. Oliveira, wow. nearly, Oliveira nearly pinched the runner-up spot. Uh, in the end, just two points behind in third. Alex Marquez in fourth. Um, he'll be another rider who will expect to challenge for the championship next year. Um, Pekka Banyaya fifth. Mattia Pasini in sixth. Um, the perennial pole man from the second half of the season. Nakagami seventh. Brad Binder eighth. Simone Corsi ninth. And Sirin rounds out the overall top ten for the season. Uh, he finished on 106 points. do the news and we're heading back to Valencia and um, testing for 2018 gets underway in the uh, what's so brilliant about MotoGP these days is that they begin testing for the next campaign just 48 hours after the last one is finished. Um, 2018 to, starts now! Yeah, just to uh, whet the appetite for next season um, and yeah as it goes Drake Mark Marquez starting 2018 just how he finished 2017 with another miracle save. Of course, I had fastest overall yep. in the test as well, because of course... Almost as fast as his pole time. Yeah, I'm certainly going, please tell me that bike was in quality trim, please. <laughs> um, for the love of God. It was um, a very short run in fairness, but even so, he yeah. was very quick all week. Yeah, very quick all week. Again, very comfortable out there. He seems, he seems to like the bike, which is basically a danger sign for everybody else already, that Marquez is comfortable this is a problem. But um, yeah, like way to start next season, the way he closed out the last one, just on top, looking very, very comfortable out there, looking like a guy who is, you know, the world, cha the four-time world champion in MotoGP already. Um, yeah, very, very, very fast indeed. Very consistent. And yeah, seemingly at, at comfortable in 2018, bike, which is a good sign going forward already. Mm, absolutely. And um, yeah, the... the I mean, what would we say were the big stories from this test trip? I mean, I think the team that perhaps most people were looking at at this two-day testing Valencia were Yamaha, um, who, of course, had the most answers to find, given how their season finished. They were desperately searching for a solution to their problems in both dry and wet conditions. And they're certainly, I've already seen in the press release from this week's test that Maverick Vinales has gone on the record saying he hopes there's rain at this test in Sepang um, in December because they want to get to the root of their wet weather problems um, with this bike. Um, but I guess it's a measured ray of just how much of a mess Yamaha are in that they had 2016, 2017 and 2018 aerodynamic kits ready to go on their bike and many, many different engine specs too. It almost seems as if this team is now just throwing as much mud at the wall as it can and hoping that eventually some of it sticks. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, have you ever seen that where a team has brought three years' yeah. worth of bikes to one test? That is a mess. Like, It's what testing's for, I suppose, but it, it just shows you just how, how muddled the thinking is at that team. Absolutely, it, like, like I don't know what they're trying to do. I don't know what the end game is here. Like, it, and again, Valentino Rossi completely wrecked a bike as well. Oh, yeah. It was that like I thought was a, a key summation of their season. That Rossi just looking over a completely broken Yamaha because that's what it feels like. The, the, the team looks and it feels broken right now with the fact that they have got three different years of bike, three different aero kits. Um, they've crashed in practice already. They were still nowhere. They were barely on top of their testing times from last year when Maverick was the fastest man at the test. Um, the progress just isn't there. It doesn't show it. You can see, you can, Honda, you can see where the difference they've made. Um, you can see the difference that they, uh, they've made as well the previous year as well with, um, you know, with the big bad engine that Honda's had and Ducati with the GP17. Yamaha have gone backwards. That says a lot. Yeah, they have, and and it, I can kind of see what they're doing, and it, it, I guess the proof of the pudding will be Sepang at the end of January and the, the first test of the new year, just to see what kind of 2018 package Yamaha have finally been able to come up with, because they'll be sifting through all this data that they've got from the three riders they had last weekend, or last week at the test, both Rossi Vinales and Zarco, who was also being given plenty of different bits to try out, to try and get this uh, get as much data as Yamaha could. Um, and they're presumably going to try and piece the best bits of all the different configurations and build the 2018 Yamaha M1 out of it um, and hope that it, it works next year. Um, and I have to say, there's been very little in the second half of this year that has left us to praise Yamaha. Um, and I know many, many commentators and many, many pundits and many fans are perhaps guilty of praising Valentino Rossi when perhaps praise isn't necessary. Um, but I have to say... Full credit to the guy at the age of 38 after a long, long season in which he's broken his leg. Have a guess. The last guy, um, when the sun was setting on Wednesday afternoon in Valencia, the last guy out on track circulating and doing long runs was Valentino Rossi, um, which is a measure of the man. Just uh, at the age of 38, this guy still wants it so badly um, that, yeah. he's, that he's prepared to race for the broken leg and he's prepared to be the last guy on the final evening of official pre-season, postseason testing out there doing lap after lap on a two-year-old Yamaha to try and get the team the best possibility of building a good bike for next year. Um, that's a measure of just how much that guy still wants it. Um, and there's talk this guy might be retiring soon. I think it might be a little while yet because this guy still believes that he could still compete at the front. Um, and he proves it weekend after weekend. And the uh, the desire and the work rate is still there um, for Valentino Rossi. Um, one other thing that was curious, Dre, surrounding Yamaha last weekend was, of course, Zoran Zarco and the talk, of course, surrounding him. Um, as there is a text week every year that, of course, they will run the previous year's factory Yamaha, which isn't really much of a prize this year. Um, but what was really curious from that test was that Zoran Zarco tried the 2017 Yamaha, and by all accounts, he loved it. Okay, there's a serious problem here. Uh, so, somebody's pulling the wool over our eyes, and I don't know who it is. Um, can we figure out who's lying here, please? Yeah. Hook, him up, hook him up to the Jeremy Cole line. It's like a, something's not quite right here. Um, so you're telling me that Maverick Vignanes and Valentino Rossi have hated that 2017 bike so much they've gone back to last year. Zarko tries it for the first time, and he loves it. Okay, something is not right here. Um <laughs> Yeah, this doesn't quite add up. But uh, hey, again, Zarco doing what he does best, just getting the best out of uh, situations that maybe aren't the best. But hey, 
he, he makes it work. And yeah, God, Sarko. I mean, he says it a lot when Julian Ryder came out and said, the one guy in the paddock everybody fears for next year is Johan Zarco. Now, I would take that with a little bit of salt because I don't think people would actually mean that. But mm. Zarco, phew, all signs point to him being back in the top five again next year because, again, like if, he, if, he, if he's liking the 2017 bike, a bike that, hey, did win races last year and given that Zarco already came close on two occasions this year, yeah. Definitely one to watch. Yeah, he spoke after the second day and he said, I'm happy and I like the new bike. Um, he said, I started on the 2016 bike that I rode this year in order to get some references and a feeling on the first run. And then I tried the 2017 version and overall I have a good feeling when I'm braking, which is important. When you start the race to have more control like this on the brakes means you can fight in a better way. So I am pleased. Um, it, perhaps it's just as simple as the fact that Jean Zarco has a completely different style than... Vinales and Rossi, which just might just suit this current Yamaha down to the ground. Um, and he, he did a good job. He did actually mention um, later on in the test when Dylan Gray, um, another guy, by the way, who's uh, departing in the MotoGP paddock, and we wish him all the best, another integral and brilliant part of the MotoGP production Absolutely. Uh, in the paddock. Um, Dylan interviewed him at the end of the second day, and Zarko did actually mention that he did run that bike, 2017 bike, on old tyres to try and get an impression of whether it does indeed have the same problems for him that it had for Vinales and Rossi, that it just runs out a tyre towards the end of a race. Um, and Zarco did indeed spot that same issue, but he did genuinely like the bike um, that he rode on. So we'll see. Um, maybe it's not perhaps a punishment for him uh, next year to be riding that 2017 M1 in 2018. Um, but back to your point with Julian Ryder, who said that he's the guy that most people fear um, in the paddock. I certainly think for next year, he's the guy that most people will be looking to sign for 2019 because I think we're going to be talking about this so much Dre in 2018 here on Bike Live about the rider market every key rider is out of contract at the end of 2018 that includes Mark Marquez that includes Valentino Rossi that includes Danny Pedrosa all of the key players are out of contract at the end of next season um, and in many ways the key man in the rider market is Rossi to see if he decides whether he wants to carry on and ride into his 40s or whether next year will be his last in MotoGP Um whether it is or it isn't, I think many teams will be looking at Zarco very, very closely. Of course, if Rossi does decide to retire, you can see Zarco being plugged into that second factory Yamaha in a, in an instant. Um, but if he isn't, you've got to feel there are factories up and down that pit lane, KTM at the front of the queue, we think, desperate to sign Joe and Zarco. Yeah, like got all, all signs in the KTM camp are saying they want Johan Zarco to spearhead their team. And I'm like, well... You've got Paul Spagaro, who's yes. fantastic this year. Like, are you sure you want another guy to give him so you know to ruffle his feathers a bit? I'm not sure that's the way to go. I mean, Yamaha maybe has proven this season that having two prolific contenders probably isn't the way to go when it comes to taking points off each other. And the, and the, maybe the, that's the signs also seem to be from listening to Herbie Ponceral on the World Feed testing feed over the weekend that much like with the Spagaro and Smith, if a factory like KTM comes in with a truckload of money, Herbie's not going to stand in Zarco's way. Yeah, I mean, again, he's a, he's a class guy, Hervé Poncherola, but uh, I, sadly I didn't get a chance to listen to this um, because I was at work at the time, but from all, from all accounts, I've heard that Poncherola's interview on, on during the testing with, with, with the mold feed was fantastic, and it's well worth a listen if you, if you, if you want to go out of your way to find it. Um, again, Poncherola was very honest and very candid about this. He said, straight up, I'm not going to stand in, in Zarco's way if he, if he wants a, a big factory deal because Tech Free can't compete with that. They're an independent team. They're a satellite team. They haven't got millions to be paying their riders on a salary, like unlike all the other big boys do. And 
you've got to forget, Zarko is 26 years old. He's not a young and like a like you know, like an Alex Rins or you know or a Marquez who's probably already making a shit ton as it is. But he's not one of those guys that's already made his money, and he, he's he's got a very small window emerging. Probably smaller than the average rider does because he's debuted in the top flight at, at 20, which is now a bit old for MotoGP these days um, for comes to guys making their debut. So, hey, if KTM comes along with a truckload of money, um, Zocker would, I'm sure, would snap at that because you're only going to get maybe one or two chances to, to get on a factory team and make that real big factory salary money. And Zarko is more than worthy of that status, if you ask me. And, hey... KTM are the fastest rising team in the field right now. Wouldn't uh, being the number one guy in that in that team wouldn't be a bad place to start. No, I mean who's to say? Fast forward twelve months to the end of the twenty eighteen season, who's to say where KTM are going to be? Um, just who knows how far that progress is going to take them. Um, and by all accounts, both Paul Spargo and Bradley Smith on the postseason post race test in Valencia this week, again very very complimentary of their package. Um, looking ahead to next year, um, Spargo and Smith on the final day in um, Valencia were 11th and 12th respectively, um, and I'd expect KTM to be at least that good next season. You know they're going to be regular Q2 and top 10 contenders I think throughout next year. <clears throat> so we look forward to seeing KTM's progress and indeed which riders they sign up um, for 2019. Because of course they've got arguably the two fastest rising stars in Moto2 as well uh, on their payroll. Um, so again, they have an embarrassment of riches uh, over at KTM um, looking into the future. Um, one of the other big stories that certainly I noticed from this test rate um, was Ducati. And Andrea Davizioso, in, I think he's earned a bit of a rest. He pretty much packed up and decided he was finished with about an hour and a half to go on the final day. He'd done all the work he needed to do, even though he was down in 15th. He got through all the running he had to do. So he had enough and he sat down in his, in his pit and got ready to go home. On the cool. first day... The story of Ducati was really not the factory team at all because the fastest Ducati rider on day one, first time he's jumped on a Ducati in his life, was Jack Miller, which again, almost in half an hour, he justified his switch from Mark BDS. Yeah, like the the guy, the guy belongs now. Um, he absolutely belongs and hops on a Ducati straight away, very comfortable. But I know he had a crash early um, in, in, in on that first day as well from turn ten of which just drawn a lot of eye. I mean, Casey Stoner was one of the guys to chip in saying, well, they've got to resurface turn 10 because too many guys are dropping. But, you know, by any account, Miller, super fast. Apparently his fastest lap was very close to what Lorenzo was running in terms of race pace throughout that race on the yeah, same... On, G- that, on that very first day, Jack Miller did a 30.6 on the Ducati. Very, very fast indeed. That would have put him close to the front row in qualifying. So... Yeah, like very, very brisk pace from Miller, and he seems to have taken to that bike very quickly, which is a good sign, and probably the reason why he switched over in the first place after all those years of Honda. Maybe he's found something that's more to his style. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. The other big story on day one was the fact that neither Suzuki rider uh, ran on day one, essentially because both their riders had the trucks, unfortunately, so they they didn't ride at all. They were back in action on day two. Um, a pretty, of course, welcome Scott Redding to the fold for the first time. He had a solid enough weekend, although he did state um, whether this was just Scott Redding um, not wanting people to think he was slow. He was pretty keen to point out to Dylan Gray on the second day that he wasn't chasing outright lap times at all um, over the course of that test. Um, we'll take him at face value on that. Um, but he was way down the uh, second half of the field on both days. Um, so the other key issue to really look out for in these post-race tests in Valencia are always the rookies that arrive in MotoGP. Of course, this time last year, we were all taken aback at how good Zarco and Folger were. 
Not quite the same waves made this time by Franco Morbidelli, Takaki Nakagami, and Xavier Simeon. Um, but I think it's fair to say, Dre, in, certainly in the case of Morbidelli um, and Nakagami on that second day, I think they'll both be pretty satisfied, given that the Honda certainly seems not to be the easiest bike to make your debut on. Um, but both Morbidelli and Nakagami, 1.7 and 1.8 seconds off the blistering lap time of Mark Marquez, respectively, which I think for the first two days as a MotoGP rider is a pretty good start. Not bad indeed. Not bad indeed. The, uh, yeah, first time out on a bike, different class, more power, 250 horsepower MotoGP bikes. And again, they're already competitive in that field already as rookies on a, a, a apparently notoriously difficult to ride Honda at times. They've done very well for themselves there. So again, a, a good start and it will only get better as they rack up the laps. And, and shout out to Cal Crutzlow as well, who um, gets a bit of criticism, um, often rightly so, but um, a lovely touch during that second afternoon when he um, essentially sat up um, up at turn one and let Nakagami through to say, do you know what? I'm going to follow you for a bit and have a look at your riding to see what I can I can pick up and give you some give me some pointers for it, which was a really nice touch for um, Cal Crutchlow, who of course now has a teammate to uh, to ride with next year in the form of Nakagami. So uh, doing the experienced teammate role as the experienced rider and um, helping Nakagami out a bit and offering him some pointers um, as far as how to ride a Honda MotoGP bike um, into next year. Um, Xavier Simeon, by the way, had a bit of a crash on day one and had several of them on the Moto2 bike last weekend. Uh, he finished 20th on the second day, 2.6 seconds off, um, which actually is probably closer than I thought he'd be. Um, so hopefully into next year, Xavier Simeon, yeah. who is going to be on a two-year-old Ducati, um, will justify his spot in that team. We wish him well. Um, Moto2, Moto3 have been testing as well this week. They've been elsewhere in Spain. They've been at Andalusia in Jerez. Um, for their first pre-season test of 2018. And uh, Dre, in the least surprising news we brought you tonight, Miguel Oliveira was quickest. No way! <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, no surprises there. The man in form right now, no surprises at all that he's going this quickly. And yeah, quite quite rightly so. The guy is, is, is guys rocking it. And yeah, no surprise at all. They keep getting stronger and stronger. And I think they will keep going as long as as long as, as long as KTM and keep keep pumping effort into that bike. So, yeah, it's it's I'm, the only thing I've taken from this really is just how stacked Moto Two is. Again, I mentioned it before, but Oliveira still on top. Yeah, Oliveira on top. Pecco Bagnaia um, was the nearest contender to him. Um, Oliveira did a one forty one five. Um, Bagnaia a forty one six in second place. Third was Alex Marquez on a forty one seven. The curious one is fourth position, because this rider, you might remember this guy, he's a former world champion in Moto3. Fourth position on the speed-up, no less, was Danny Kent. Um, and oh. this this is going to be such a fascinating one to watch next season, Dre, because I get the feeling that much like when Sam Lowe's on that bike, they are going to be so unpredictable. Um, I, I could see days where that speed-up is the slowest bike in the field, and I can also see days where Danny Kent's challenging the podium. I think it's going to be that kind of year for them. I think it could be. I mean, speed up were never the most reliable outfit in the world. We saw him struggle and go up and down with Sam Lowe's a couple of years ago. And, you know, how that, you know, at times Lowe's could challenge for wins. Other times he'd be struggling in the midfield or crashing. And, yeah, where Danny Kemp plays out in that over the course season is going to be very interesting in evening. So, only course, he probably isn't the best yardstick for that as a bike at this point. Um, so, seeing Danny Kemp back in Moto2 with, with another different chassis. Maybe this will be the one that unlocks his true potential because I mean, who knows? I mean, this, this, you know, it looks strong, but again, like it's it's not a surefire sign. 
No, it isn't. Um, <laughs> elsewhere in the Moto2 test, um, Brad Bender was fifth ahead of Pacini and Marini. Marini, by the way, um, is now part of the Sky DL46 team. He's now the teammate to Bagnaia um, going into next season. Isaac Mignales was then next up. He was eighth overall ahead of Javi Vierge, who is now on a suitor with Dynavolt. Um, if you heard that Hervé Pontural interview, he's not best pleased about that, um, given that he believes that Vierge can uh, be, perhaps set his sights a bit higher uh, than that team um, for next year. Um, and 10th was Remy Gardner, the uh, first of the Tech 3 riders, ahead of Fabio Quartararo 11th. He's uh, now uh, on the second of the speed-ups, of course, teammate to Kent. And Sam Laws and Hector Barbara, the two MotoGP dropouts, for want of a better term, 12th and 13th. Um, Sam Laws, of course, first time on the KTM. Um, on the uh, Interveten team that Thomas Lutie has vacated. Um, other interesting notes, the rookies, Joan Mir, the Moto3 world champion, he was 18th overall on a 142.9, so just 1.4 seconds off the outright pace for Mir, um, much like Bo Benchneider, who was also 1.4 off on the Tech 3 Mistral, um, mm. which um, kind of lends support to the theory that Bo Benchneider, being so tall, was perhaps best out of Moto3 and best getting on a Moto2 bike, and he's already kind of proving that theory correct um he was every bit a bit as fast as Mir. and romano fanati was also on that same pace he was 23rd um but he was just 1.6 seconds off the outright pace in many ways i suppose dre that's the easy bit in moto 2 given how competitive it is the hard work starts now absolutely the grind starts here i mean cracking job from bench the first time out again maybe the bigger bikes are better fit for him but so uh, yeah the work absolutely starts now on this grind it's a completely different bike compared to the moto threes and it's always going to be intriguing to see how these guys adapt. Yeah, because uh, Taron McKenzie, of course, was a, a rookie this season uh, with the Kiefer team. Um, he was 1.9 seconds off pole position on uh, on Saturday at Valencia, and that was only good enough for 31st on the grid. Um, Come on, so, mate. So that's a 2 folks. Um, so that's the uh, that's the uh, uh, the tank piranhas that Joan Mir, Boban Schneider, Romano Fanati, and Jules Danilo, incidentally, are all climbing up into um, for next season in Moto2. Um, so we'll see how they get on. Um, away from testing and um, more MotoGP news, two huge stories that broke um, over the course of the last week. Um, the first of them broke the day after um, the team, Repsol Honda, won the championship. It's kind of shocking news, really, really, that Livio Supo is leaving them. Uh, what? <laughs> um, yeah, this was a real shock. It was like, well... Livio's now won four of the last five championships. So I mean, he's, he's got, I think he's got five in total. If you yeah, can, if he masterminded Ducati's title, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, a great one with Casey Stoner in 2011 as well, when they had three bikes in that team and they completely dominated. Um, yeah, definitely one to keep an eye on. Um, but uh, yeah, Livio leaving that was a genuine shock to me. I, I didn't think he'd walk away. Um, Guy fancies a different challenge, and again, I mean, he's manufacturing and he's had to run through three incredible talents in Marquez, Stoner and Pedrosa over the last half decade or so. And well, I guess he's, I guess his logic is, is that he's taken Honda as far as he can take him. He's, he's got him in a great spot right now with Marquez. He's won four top flight championships already. Pedrosa is a fantastic number two to have like a real asset to that camp. I guess what more could he do? So if he wants a new challenge, yeah, I guess now's as good a time as any for him to leave. Yeah, in his own words, he says that he's uh, leaving to pursue uh, new challenges um, in the future. So um, it'll be interesting to see what those new challenges are, whether it's at another MotoGP team or in another uh, walk of life entirely. Um, whatever it is, we wish him well. He's been a, 
a very a key name and a key face in the MotoGP paddock, much like the the, the likes of Hervé Poncherel. Um, he's a guy that you can always rely on for brutal honesty, I suppose. When he, whenever he speaks in interviews, you always he never um, minces his words, and uh, I particularly think of his interviews post Sepang 2015 for that one. Um, he's not one to um, keep his thoughts to himself, but he. Um, much like Poncherelle, he's always very open in interviews without being a hot take artist. He's you know, he's always very considered and very thoughtful, but also very open. Um, so it's sad to see him departing the paddock. We wish Livio well. Um, on the other piece of MotoGP news, the big news that broke last weekend, certainly if you are listening to this podcast in the UK and are hoping to go to the British Grand Prix next season, book your tickets not for Donington, but for Silverstone. Uh, which will be hosting the British Grand Prix for the next three years. Um, Donington was rumoured to be the favourite to host this Grand Prix over the last few weeks, um, but Silverstone seemingly came in with a late bid and took the uh, the three-year contract for 2018, 19 and 20. Um, so um, any lingering thoughts you might have had regarding the Circuit of Wales, get rid of them entirely. That thing is dead in the water. Um, but as far as the British Grand Prix is concerned, Dre, I know many traditionalists... Um, for want of a better term, uh, came very hard for Donington, but I'm for one, I'm very happy to see MotoGP staying at Silverstone because I don't remember a bad MotoGP race taking place there. Sod tradition, sod it to all hell. Like, yeah. Silverstone is one of the best tracks on the calendar. I'm not even making this up. It is a fantastic race. It's a proper bike track. It, it's 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 a great facility. It's And it produces fantastic racing in all three classes. It keeps things close. I don't think you could ask for much more as, a, as an overall series. I think it does a fantastic job. Let's, let's not overthink this. Go to Silverstone where you can get 80,000 there. You know, I know it's a pain to get to, but it produces as good a racing as anything on the calendar right now. So just leave it at that, man. Like, let's not over let's not over-wreck the pudding here. Mm. Sorry, Donington, maybe some other time. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, just uh, stick to um, offering... a. Uh... Tom Sykes is uh, one and only win for the year uh, in 2018. Uh, we'll, we'll take that. Um, but yeah, as far as MotoGP is concerned, it, it, it does not produce a single bad Grand Prix. Fast circuits just produce great racing. Just take Assen, for instance. Take Mugello, for instance. Um, fast circuits where riders can follow and uh, take different lines and overtake each other at just about any corner on the circuit. By and large, they produce good races. Um, and Silverstone does that in spades. So um, yeah, I'm not disappointed at all um for that um and uh julian Ryder spoke very kindly about uh Silverstone as well talking about how good a circuit it is uh on the calendar as well um so uh yeah uh, in fact matt oxley um a, a comment that julian Ryder endorsed on twitter uh matt oxley said Silverstone is a great track it asks the maximum of rider and machine which is exactly what a racetrack should do Silverstone pi philip island and Mugello are the opposite of go-kart tracks like valencia long may they reign um was yes. matt oxley's comment um to which uh, julian Ryder simply quoted by saying correct um, and Matt Oxley um, referring to MotoGP's three most rock and roll racetracks being Silverstone, Mugello and Phillip Island um, yes. which is brilliant um, and yeah given that there may not be a Formula 1 race there for many more years um, yeah it's great that there'll be a British Motorcycle Grand Prix taking place at Silverstone for at least the next three years um, I don't care what anyone says about Donington I for one am delighted that MotoGP is staying at Silverstone uh, now, uh, British Superbike News. This is one championship that will be going to Donington next year. Um, it will be starting its season there. And there'll be a brand new class to join the British Superbike Championship because they are jumping on the Supersport 300 train. Um, of course, that debuted this season with its inaugural World Championship alongside the World Superbike pack, um, Support Package. 
And we're going to have a Super Sport 300 class in BSB 2, Dre. It will be entitled the Junior Super Sport Championship, uh, which will be open to riders aged 14 to 22. Um, and will be open to the same types of machinery that we see in the Super Sport 300 class. And um, yeah, if it's anything like the uh, World Championship equivalent, um, it'll be a welcome addition to the BSB bill. Absolutely. Great addition. They're going by World Superbike Rules, which is a good place to start. Um, good to see some uniform plays. They're going to be an easy stepping stone to the World Series if, if, if people on the domestic level are good. It makes perfect sense from where I'm sitting. Um, yeah, can't wait for it. I mean, there's a lot of great tracks. So I think this, the 300s will fit around very, very well. I think that's a fantastic addition to the BSB bill. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing how it shakes out. Yeah, absolutely. That debuts next season. It'll be running at the majority of the British rounds. Not all of them. It won't be going to Cadwell Park, for instance. Um, I don't think it's going to Assen either. Um, but that will be part of the BSB support bill next season, the inaugural Junior British Super Sport Championship. Um, now, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the motorcycle racing for the year is finished, but it actually isn't. There is one more big race to talk about, and that takes place this weekend. Um, and that is the 64th Macau Motorcycle Grand Prix. Or the 64th Macau Grand Prix, the 51st Motorcycle Racing Edition. Um, this is basically the uh, competition to see who has the biggest balls on two wheels. Um, and uh, so far, that honour has gone to Glenn Irwin um, of BYZ Ducati, who has taken pole position um, for that race, ahead of Peter Hickman and Michael Rutter. Um, basically, this race, um, if you watch this race, which takes place, I believe, in the early hours of Sunday morning, um, it features many of the riders you'll be familiar with if you follow the Isle of Man TT a lot. Um, and I've got to be honest, Ray, um, I struggled to watch a touring car race or an F3 race around Macau without putting my hands over my eyes. Got to say, anyone who believes that they are tough enough and brave enough to race around there on a superbike has my undying respect. Yeah, I don't know how anybody does this. Like it's, it's like playing it on the PGR four video game, like on the Xbox three hundred and sixty. You just go ah every time you you, you go around the corner because you just this is ridiculous. One wrong move and you you could literally be dead. Um, it's it's ridiculous. You could debate the whether they go to these races on the superbikes until the cows come home. Point is, they do it and they know what they're getting themselves into. So more power to them, I say. Um, good luck. Yeah, good luck, <laughs> yeah, good luck and stay safe, guys. Uh, Glenn Irwin on pole position uh, by 1.4 seconds, um, which sounds like a lot. It, I mean, it is a lot, but of course, Macau on superbikes, it's a two and a half minute lap. So you could expect slightly bigger gaps between riders uh, in qualifying there. Um like some of the images are astonishing any image that you see of a motorcycle rider around macau and they're pretty much grazing the armcos with their shoulders uh, it's incredible the commitment that these guys put in uh, for a race like this and we wish them all the very best and we hope they stay safe um for this weekend uh, as they go in search of macau victory glenn Irwin, as i mentioned on pole position uh, and it's been a good week for the Irwin family because his brother andrew Irwin, who finished this year as the runner-up uh, or one of the close uh, contenders to overall champion Keith Farmer in the British Supersport Championship, will be going World Supersport next season. He will be replacing Jules Cluzel, no pressure, um, at the CIA Landlords Insurance team for next season. So Andrew Irwin uh, will be joining the World Supersport foray um, for 2018. And two more pieces of news surrounding the World Superbike Championship. Uh, in fact, three pieces, because their World Superbike 300 champion Mark Garcia has been in the news as well. 
he will be racing in the Moto3 Junior World Championship next season with Max B. Anji's team. Um, so that'll be an interesting story to follow next year. He's also wildcarding in this weekend's final round of this season as well. So uh, keep an eye on Mark Garcia, the inaugural Supersport 300 champion, who makes his uh, debut in the Junior Moto3 Championship next season. Um, but the two pieces of news surrounding the premier class of World Superbikes, World SBK, the Grillini team are in the news for pretty much the first time we've mentioned them all year, uh, but for a very good reason, because they have decided that they are going to run the brand new Suzuki GSX R1000 for next season. Um, and Dre, it's probably not the most exciting news, it's probably not the team we wished would be running them, um, given that with uh, Edson Badovini and uh, Andre Jezek this season, they didn't score 50 points between them. Um, but even so, for the championship to have another new manufacturer and another new superbike on the grid can't be a bad thing. No, absolutely not. Only again, only a good thing for the series right now. Um, yeah, we, we're gonna get we're gonna see how the new one thousand shakes up in World Superbikes. I know it's not the best team and the best resources by any stretch, but hey, you've got to start from somewhere. So, yeah, I'm all for it. I look forward to seeing how this goes down. Um, yeah, great to have Suzuki in another factory, sort of, factory team in the field. And no confirmation on either of their riders yet. Um, as I mentioned to Dre in the uh, pre-show, I'm pretty sure they'll be searching long and hard for Sullivan Gintoli's phone number, um, given that he is available. He, well talk. He, he, he is available, and he did ride that Suzuki in BSB all year this year, and won a race on it at Assen. Um, so, um, yeah, he might be the ideal rider if you're going to run that bike in World Championships in the first, uh, in its first year get a guy who knows it so um i'd be amazed amazed if that team hasn't tried or not and indeed doesn't sign Sylvan Gintoli for 2018 if i mean it's a no-brainer um so we'll see if that team does indeed do it um and yeah arguably given the rule changes that come in next season it might be the ideal time for them to join up um given that the uh, the various manufacturers of which there will now be six of them next year uh, are all going to be equalized across the um across the board with the uh, new uh, rev limits brought in um, for the bikes that are perhaps more competitive than others next year. So uh, for Grolini and Suzuki, um, this might well be the ideal time to join forces for 2018. And of course, when they do confirm their rider lineup, we will update you on this show. Um, but one rider has been confirmed for next year at Altea BMW, which um, in itself um, quashes one rookie that Altea and BMW might be splitting. They are staying together for next year. Uh, and they're bringing with them Loris Baz, um, former World Superbike rider, of course, former World Superbike race winner. Um, he won two races back in his time at Kawasaki, which, of course, ended in rather acrimonious circumstances. Um, but given <laughs> but given how he's done, Dre, in his three years in MotoGP, um, where I think he's been outstanding, um, this is another welcome addition to the World Superbike paddock. Loris Baz returning, I think, is great news for the series. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Baz is a solid rider, race-winning level rider in World Superbikes, and another great name to have back in the series given that Jordi Torres is going to MV. He's a great guy to have there. I think he'll be a good team leader for him. He's, 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 he'll, be, he'll be back a better rider for his three years in MotoGP. And he's a guy that's been in the series before. So again, I think it will be great. Just, uh, I, 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 might, I might start playing some scary music over the top of this. And now Loris Baz is back in, in the same paddock as Tom Sykes. I was Sykes. about to say, stay out of the way of 66. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun the first time those two race each other on track in Philip Island, won't it? Oh boy. Uh, no love lost there. Um, so, uh, yeah, another story to uh, add to World Superbikes next season. So that's going to be fascinating. Um, in a season where 
certainly in the eyes of Dorna, they hope a season of change for next year um, as they look to um, bring Jonathan Ray and Kawasaki back towards the competition with uh, some creative rule changes. Um, we'll see if that happens. Um, before all of that, though, and before we go for 2017, we have some season reviews to bring you. Next week on this show, we will review the Superbike season, um, which will be a, a combination of a British Superbike and World Superbike season review uh, for episode 40 next week. Following that, we'll review the MotoGP season, and into December, uh, we will review um, the year as a whole on two wheels with the Bike Live Awards. Um, that will be in the run-up to Christmas. Um, and as I mentioned, we um, certainly are hoping uh, there are tentative plans in the works for a combined show um, as Motorsport 101 and Bike Live um, combine uh, in the run-up to Christmas. Keep uh, your eye on the various social media channels for that. Uh, we're working which, on it, Joe. We'll, we'll promise you we're working on it. We <laughs> are working on it. Um, the will is there to do it. We just need to uh, sort the timings out, but we'll uh, update you on that. Um, for all the news on that, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101, Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. Um, if you want to follow Dre's exploits on the new GT game, it's youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, our website is motorsport101.net. If you haven't read Dre's piece on the year of the protagonist, it's surrounding um, Andre Davizioso and some other bloke. Um, motorsport101.net. Excuse uh, me? And uh, if you want to earn early access by uh, backing us on Patreon, head to patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 um, and if you do so you'll earn yourself early access next week to episode 113 of motorsport101 um, and I think we're going to have to get creative with uh, our episodes into December Dre because uh, Formula 1 is the only show in town really for the rest of the season and they're on a gap week yeah this this could be another tricky one unfortunately there's a bit of news floating around in the air i mean the news that uh, toro rosso's confirms that they're seeing the love of pierre gasly and brendan hartley for next year oh and they're planning to drop this morning danica patrick going to next year's indy 500 to close her career that is bound to get some discussion going around here as well so yeah danica's back that should be fun um so all that and probably dipping into the mailbag in a show we're probably gonna have to improvise again yeah. what's the worst that could possibly happen episode 113 next week yeah weck in bahrain as well that's the only thing i can think of that's happening this weekend um worth mentioning but um yeah uh, that's about as uh, entertaining a series to, to me as it is to you dre so uh, yeah i don't think uh, that will um end much of our time um as I say, we're heading into December now. We will be continuing into December here on Bike Live and Motorsport 101. Most likely, once we get to Christmas and into the new year, we will be going fortnightly and alternating between the two shows. Um, Most but as, likely. But as I said, as I mentioned, we will update you on that on social media. So follow our various social media channels for news as we continue. As I say, we'll be continuing right throughout the winter, but most likely alternating between the shows until the new season starts with World Superbikes in February. Um, at the end of that month with Philip Island, the opening round of 2018. Um, but as I mentioned, next week here on Bike Life episode 40, we'll review the World Superbike season and indeed the British Superbike season, both of which had plenty of action. The World Superbike Championship, which brought more history-making dominance from Jonathan Ray, and the British Superbike Championship, which ended with one of the great shows of sportsmanship and a record-breaking champion in shaky burn. We'll review all of that next week on episode 40, but until then, for myself and Andre Harrison, it's thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.